This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual communities. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taya Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Ken McLeod, author of the newly released book, The Magic of Vajrayana. The Magic of Vajrayana weaves original translations of instructions, insightful commentary and context about key practices, and authentic personal experiences into a powerful transmission of this vibrant tradition of mystical practice. One of the more innovative Buddhist teachers today, Ken McLeod is known for his clear explanations, poetic translations, and pragmatic approach to practice. He is one of the first generation of Western teachers in the Tibetan tradition and one of the few to be authorized to transmit the full scope of these teachings to students. In particular, his approach resonates strongly with those whose path lies outside established institutions. After graduating with a degree in mathematics, Kin cycled across Europe to Istanbul and then continued his journey overland to India. In 1970, he met his principal teacher, Kalu Rinpoche, at his monastery near Darjeeling. There, Kin began a study and practice in Tibetan Buddhism that lasted for more than 20 years. He completed the traditional three-year retreat program two times, translated for many teachers, and helped set up Buddhist centers in Canada and the United States. After his teacher's passing, Kin moved away from the hierarchical structures of Asian Buddhism to explore new approaches. In 1990, he founded Unfettered Mind in Los Angeles. His approach of one-on-one consultations roiled the Buddhist world in the early 90s, but was quickly recognized as a viable way to teach and guide students in the West. He made individual interviews a central feature of the many retreats he taught in California, New Mexico, and British Columbia. Through numerous small groups in Southern California, he developed the materials that became the Encyclopedic Meditation Manual, Wake Up to Your Life. Now retired from formal teaching, he lives in Northern California where he hikes and writes. His writings and translations include The Great Path of Awakening, Wake Up to Your Life, An Arrow to the Heart, Reflections on Silver River, A Trackless Path, and The Magic of Vajrayana, as well as a corpus of articles and translations in Tricycle and other Buddhist magazines. Ken McLeod, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you very much, Stuart. Good to see both of you. Well, it's good to have you on, especially uh, for the topic of this discussion, which is your book, The Magic of Adriana, just published a month or a couple of months ago, I think. And not, shortly, if not now, already available in paperback. So the paperback is up on Amazon. There you go. Excellent. So um, uh, I want to start off by just making a comment about uh, the book itself, which occurred to me first when I when I started uh, reading it. And it is it is this that um, there are very, very few spiritual books, books that discuss um, the topic that you're that you're addressing and not the narrow topic, but the broader topic. I mean, that I could say have an art 
to them. They are written, this book is written artfully, like using the same or similar standards that I use with regard to a novel that I find brings both clarity and complexity and balances them. This book does that for me. And, and it's an impressive achievement. I know that, that part of it is about rearranging the elements because I've heard you discuss that you had help in creating a, uh, um, an organization of the book, the presentation of the book. And let me tell you, it, 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 was, uh, it exceeds um, all my expectations, because as I said, there are very few spiritual books that, that to me, I could point to and say that is artistically done. So and, that's the that's the first comment for, yeah, for and, listeners. And I just add add to that that uh, the way I experience the artistry of it is that there uh, this book is unique in that it weaves together three threads that rarely are woven uh, so skillfully in a book, and uh, most books don't even attempt this. And that is the there is the context of the practices and just an understanding of the uh, tradition there's the actual realization or the depiction of the practices but then there's also the personal experience of what it means to engage with those practices and a kind of honesty and authenticity about that engagement which is also unusual so that's how we'll start the conversation just to uh give you that uh uh, response because it, uh, it's an impactful book and it uh, and the uh, last thing I will say is it is not a book about Vajrayana in and of itself it's a book about spiritual practice of all forms I'm very glad to hear that because even though I was writing about Vajrayana and my experience with it I realized as I was writing it that had a much wider uh, significance, I suppose, in that uh, I was attempting, well, what I was trying to do was to set out how you can approach pre-modern spiritual traditions without sacrificing your the integrity of reason or without regressing psychologically into a kind of... Uh, uh, magical projection. Yeah. Uh, there, and, there's a, uh, go ahead. I, I was just going to say that in, in addition to that, there's this uh, element which also challenges the what's lost in the modernization of spiritual practices because... Could you, could you say more about that, Stuart? I'm interested to hear what... Yeah. Uh, so th this is the kind... I mean, this, this kind of issues come up when we've talked to of Buddhist teachers of a more modern sensibility that uh, want to eschew the "quote unquote" myth mythological elements or the uh, the, the so-called uh, uh, cultural trappings, yeah, of, of uh, Buddhist tradition. And in doing that, um, you lose a vitality and a power because they're assuming they know better than that that practice and or that or that centuries old tradition yeah and you're and you are very clear in this book that 
a lot of these things you have to do and let something happen. You can't know ahead of time. And so when someone in a, with a modern sensibility and a modern viewpoint looks at a traditional practice and decides that, oh, that's superstition, I don't need to do that, they're excluding something from a broader tradition that I think is uh, a mistake or, or, or a loss uh, or, you know, it's a misunderstanding, it's a misunderstanding, I think, because because it, 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 it suggests that 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 misunderstanding is based on the premise that A plus B equals C. Right. You put you put this element together with that element and you get this result. Right. And, and, and that and so and I think, as we've talked about it many times before, that that tendency leads you away from the mystical and towards the psychological when you do that, because uh subtly what you're doing is exercising the very thing that you warn about in engaging with these practices, which is a tendency to want to control. I would go further than you, either of you. I think that uh, when people approach these older traditions uh, that way, they are... Um, excluding vital parts of themselves from the practice, parts that they may or may not feel comfortable with. But I think they're excluding the artistic, uh, the spiritual, the creative, all of these things. Uh, and, and if they are allowed to come in, they're only allowed to come in in service of a self rather than in service of something undefinable. Yeah, I think that's that's fair. And and uh, throughout the book, interwoven throughout the book is your your sense of the sensibility you bring to what you're calling the mystical in Mm -hmm. in this book. And and I and I suspect that it is in and of itself a rare thing. Not entirely. I can't think of an example offhand, but but. but there are there are people who suggest that magic, the word in your title, um, can point in the direction of the mystical. But the thoroughness of the interweaving in this book with your experience, with the understanding that you've come to of what you're what you're calling in this conversation a pre-modern um, tradition is. Um, is very, very helpful because you are you are you touch upon the magic and its connection to the mystical in so many ways, often not explicitly, but um, but because of how you're doing what you're doing, that comes through, at least at least to this reader. And that's a that, that is a uh, a contribution, a unique contribution, I think. I never understood what the heck Tibetan Vajrayana was about until I read this book, really. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, and and it's not it's not like like I meant you know to be uh, to be honest, it's not that I had made significant um, put significant significant investment into understanding. Vajrayana before. I read books. We've spoken to many uh, uh, scholars and, and teachers 
um, of Adriana, but, but I never got it until I read this book. And I think, and I think it's, it's your, um, the nakedness with which you imbue the book, your own personal naked, um, how you, how you came to understand it, how you experienced it along the way. That's, that's, uh, that's pretty cool. Well, thank you. So, so uh, maybe an, uh, an area to start just to you know, start about a cluster of things outside of Adriana before we get more into the subject matter of the book is to talk about what you mean by magic, since that figures in the title of the book, you know, what is, what is, uh, what is magic to you? And then I, then I have some related things I want to bring into that, uh, uh, that came up to me in term in terms of the, uh, reading the book directly. The direction of attention, energy, atten- attention, <clears throat> and intention to change how you experience the world. Yeah. And, it's interesting because in that regard, it's subtle because um, often in a, uh, in terms of sorcery or in terms of a folk understanding of magic, there's the idea of trying to say spells to change the world. But actually in the context of this book, changing how you experience the world is actually changing the world. Well, I think it's helpful to distinguish between two understandings of world. One is the uh, materialist uh, phenomenal uh, of of the phenomenal world, which even though we use the word phenomena, uh, which refers to something that rises in the mind, it really is out there in the way that most people understand it. And that is understandable because uh, Western thought is primarily based in ontological view of the world. Whereas Eastern thought, especially Buddhism, is primarily based in how you experience it. So if you change, and that's an epistemological emphasis. So if you change how you experience it, then change does arise in the world because you're interacting with it in a different way. But it isn't, doesn't have the same sense of control that you've referred to before. And I, I agree with that. And when you do magic, it's unpredictable. You don't know what's going to happen. That's why I used the example of the king and the general. Yeah. Ah. Yes, the king The king sends the general out, but doesn't really, once the general goes out, the king doesn't have control over what the general does. No. And if the general comes to the conclusion that the king's the problem, then the general comes back and deposes the king. That's happened a few times. More than a few. Yeah. So, so then... This the other element of this that what I found striking is that uh, there's a couple of things about the way that you unpack magic in the context of Vajrayana that also I, I, I see comes up in some other um, uh, traditions as well. But one is from the outset, there's a sensibility of the dedication of the work that you're doing for the benefit of all beings. So there's a there's a 
directional sense in which we're taking our attention off of ourselves or our, our small concept of ourselves and giving to the uh, salvation or the real, uh, alleviation of suffering for beings, but also not making it about this self getting something so much as uh, a larger purpose. So there's a so so that's one element that I find uh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Do you and, want me to comment on that, or do you want to go ahead? Well, yeah, I'll, let me. I'll just say before you comment, I'll just I'll, I'll make one uh, uh, aside here that a, a friend of ours who we've had on the show in the past, um, a guy named Sam Webster, was uh, many years a, a practitioner in the Order of the Golden Dawn. But he also at one point began to study with a Tibetan teacher and he recognized that the uh, <clears throat> offering of, or the dedication of practice for the benefit of all sentient beings was a corrective and a curative to problems that he saw in the Western magical approach where people would get very obsessed with their egoic ends and their purposes and that would lead to a kind of depression or frustration because in a sense nothing would happen and so he began to introduce this into uh, uh, his own practice groups as a way to counterbalance the tendencies of magical practice to let's say reinforce or to uh, uh, cultivate a kind of egoic relationship to the world that very issue about control we were talking about and that the uh, Mahayana vision uh, uh, undercuts that or uh, counterbalances that. In fact, he actually wrote a book uh, uh, with an amusing title, Tantric Thalema, where he kind of puts Tantric it what? Th- Thalema. Thalema being the, uh, a reference to the Aleister Crowley body of oh. <laughs> magic. So it was, it was a very funny kind of combination <laughs> of, of practices, but the intent was to ground this in a giving to um, uh other dissentient beings before one actually engaged in any sort of practical work. Well, I think you're touching on something that is quite important in a number of ways. Uh, The framework for almost any practice, every practice in the Tibetan tradition is that you begin with uh, refuge and bodhicitta or awakening mind. And the awakening mind is often presented as uh, undertaking the practice in order to free all beings from samsara. But it's actually, that wording isn't uh, as deep as it actually is. And then at the end of the practice session, you uh, perform this uh, dedication or uh, sharing, or what have you, dedicating the goodness of the practice to the welfare of all beings. Now, I think it's important to uh, keep in mind something that we've discussed in previous conversations, uh, uh, the differentiation, to use Karen Armstrong's vocabulary, between logos and mythos. Uh, One of the most pernicious problematic aspects of Western culture, of modern culture, really, is uh, its literalism. And, uh, but it's not exclusive to uh, modern cultures. I think the Chinese 
in their relationship with uh, awakening mind or bodhicitta fell into the same problem, you know, hundreds of years ago. Uh, but awakening mind is properly described as the union of com- compassion and emptiness. And that is what one is aspiring to. Um, and here, compassion is not an emotion. It's actually a quality of mind. It makes a, a difference from the, uh, the emotion, compassion. Even though it's the same word in Tibetan, there really is quite a profound difference between the two. And the only way to uh, access emptiness and the uh, and, and when you do, then the compassion is there just naturally because it's a quality of mind. Is to open to the totality of one's experience, and I think that is the deeper meaning in the. Uh, bringing in this uh, framework of including all beings in one's practice. And that includes everything that is negative in oneself, which is a lot of people quietly prefer to leave out. Uh, and then I'm just looking up. Uh, I find... Here we are. The four vows in the Zen tradition... Uh, which come from the Avatamsaka Sutra or from that whole line of thought, uh, express this very uh, express this very well. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them all. That's what we're discussing. But as you engage that, you realize that the problem with beings is that they incite reactions in you. So reactions are endless. I vow to release them all. As you release them, you discover that every one of those reactions opens a door to a different way of experiencing things if you just let it go. So doors of experience are infinite. I vow to enter them all. That's often translated as Dharma gates, for instance. And then ways of awakening are limitless. Every one of those doors is a different dimension to awakening. I vow to know them all. And that last line is usually translated as uh, the Buddha's way is insurpassable. But I think that is a uh, a literal, a literal uh, translation, uh, and doesn't get at the whole thing. The parallel structure is preserved in the way that I've rendered it here. Now, it's interesting that you mention it in, in the context of magic, because uh, one of the books that I read, because I needed uh, in preparation for writing this book, was Chaos Magic, uh, and I needed to because uh, I wanted to see how is what does contemporary magic look like. In, uh, uh, in the West. And uh, these themes are very, very strongly expressed in chaos magic uh, as well, uh, particularly not focusing on yourself or what you want, because the I can't remember the author's name right now, but the author of that book says, if you do this, you will find that the magic you do comes rebounding back on you in unfortunate ways. <laughs> uh, because when you're doing it, focusing on yourself, it's necessarily coming out of patterns, reactive patterns. So you're putting your reactive patterns out into the world. And of course, they're going to come back and, uh, and eat you. 
Uh, and that's and many many people that's what people experience when they try to control things they experience the mirror reflection of that is the world controlling them often in ways that they're unhappy about and there are many legends and fairy tales about exactly this thing in the old traditions they were well aware of this the other comment i would make is that in modern culture uh I, i see one of the characteristics uh, I'm not sure it's characteristic, but one of the effects of modern culture is that it cuts people off or limits people's experience of awe. Mm. Uh, and, and so the world is what they know and they can control and anything outside that they don't want to worry about. But the, and this is why I think a lot of people just seek to go out in nature or do something which gets them out of that so they have the possibility of experiencing. Uh, and the way I define awe as being... Um, intimately connected with something that is infinitely greater than you. And I think it's a very good basis. I think it's actually the basis for uh, mystical and spiritual practice. But in modern culture, there's very little which moves us into that way, into that way of experiencing. Well, one other element that um, uh, with the connection with the magical practice uh, that I found interesting is that every practice that you describe, whether it's teacher union, uh, deity practice or protector practice begins with a grounding in emptiness begins in a grounding of, of the void. And you're actually, you're very clear on that. And that, that struck me very powerfully because I've seen, I didn't appreciate completely in some traditions uh, of magic where a magical process begins with a uh, exercise called entering the stillness. And it's, it's precisely that it's entering the non-conceptual it's, it's, it's locating yourself in the non-conceptual before anything happens. Yes. Because in order to practice magic and even more so in order to practice or cultivate the mystical understanding, you have to let go of your ordinary conception of self, which from the perspective of magic and spiritual practice is the way the self isn't just this thing inside us. That's very Cartesian. It's the whole orientation, the way we relate to the world is I and world out there. And so all of that, has to be let go of, if only for a moment, because otherwise uh, you you can find things to a very small arena. Well, I appreciate that throughout the book, you actually make this point again and again. If only just for a moment, that, the phrase you just used. And and uh, I, I don't think people would think, will think of that as a practice in and of itself, as much as you mean it to be and its effect as profound, as profound as you're suggesting right now. That's interesting, Rob. Uh, Thank you for pointing that out. Uh, What it puts me in mind is uh, an analogy that is often used in the Tibetan tradition, but elsewhere too. And that is uh, many drops of water will fill a vase. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, the 
and you may recall that in the latter part of the book, I talk about uh, return to what is already there and rest. Um, that's an instruction that I developed 40, yeah, about 40 years ago, because I wanted an instruction for meditation on the breath, which would naturally mature into uh, Mahamudra meditation on emptiness, et cetera, et cetera. And what is already there changes as your experience deepens. But it, it's as soon as you recognize something's happened, you, that you've fallen into distraction, you come back and what is already there. And if you, even if you only touch it, you know, and I, I've spent many <laughs> periods of practice where I've been very disturbed or upset or in pain or whatever and constantly distracted. <clears throat> but the practice then since consists of just keep coming back, keep coming back, keep coming back. And often you're only able to come back and rest for, you know, half a second or a second or three seconds before something takes you away. Those kinds of practice sessions, if you just keep coming back, are immensely helpful because they establish a different kind of pattern of relating to experience, one of just letting go of whatever, uh, of your involvement with what uh, what is arising, not trying to negate it or anything like that, but you're, it, it, it caught you up. Uh, and so you let go of involvement, or as I put elsewhere in the book, uh, self-investment in the experience. And you begin to experience, oh, yeah, this is very tiresome, but it's just an experience, and I can live with it. And that opens the door to another key point, which I talked about very explicitly in the uh, uh, teacher union, guru yoga section, which is learning to listen to the silence when you hear noise and being mm-hmm. able to experience the stillness of mind, even when thoughts are moving and being able to experience the depth of space, even when you've got dealing with physical objects and so forth, and, still, and stillness that's present in all movement. And once you start opening, and th- that comes about very much through this constant coming back, constant coming back, it sh- that's what shifts the relationship. And that relationship starts to shift and other doors open. So um, we haven't, <clears throat> we've talked about topics that come up in the book, especially the topic of magic so far in this conversation. But I want to just, uh, for listeners who haven't picked up the book yet, I want to contextualize what you address. So you have a contents page with uh, 10 uh, sections, an introduction, then a, a, a section on Vajrayana, guru and prayer, deity and power, birth, becoming the deity, life, living as the deity, death, dying as the deity, protector and balance. And a final uh, main chapter, living practice, after which is postscript and then a number of appendices of rituals. So a lot of the book, a lot of the words in the book are parts of, uh, this is a a point I want to bring in here. A lot of the book is about rituals about engaging practice rituals, it seems to me. And um, both in the appendices, uh, but also in the text of the book, uh, of the many chapters itself. So 
Um, I guess in my ignorance about Vajrayana, I had never understood the importance of ritual. In recent years, in, in my own spiritual tra- trajectory, I've more and more come to, more and more and more come to appreciate the utility of ritual, which was something I rejected from my Catholic upbringing. And, um, but, but ritual is obviously so central to Vajrayana um, practice and understanding. So I wonder if, it's, if you have any comment, general comments to make about this, the centrality of ritual. Um, along the lines of, for example, you, 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 you relate stories where your teacher has you do a ritual, but he doesn't explain it. In fact, he insists he doesn't even, you don't even need to know at that point um, that this ritual will be effective in some way that you will find helpful. So, so if you will, um, discuss ritual a bit as it relates to both of Adriana and your book. Well, don't shoot me for saying this, but uh, wax on, wax off. What? <laughs> I'm not sure I understand what you mean by that. Did you ever see the original Karate Kid? Well, I think it was so long ago, and well, it, didn't, it, it didn't didn't make a strong impression on me. Let's put it that way. So this young teenager uh, starts studying or uh, goes to this uh, Japanese uh, immigrant in San Fernando Valley, I guess, uh, and has to be taught uh, karate. And the first thing he does is have him polish his collection of old cars. Wax on, wax off. Ah, okay. And and then he has him painting, you know, up, down, and a couple of others. I can't remember. And finally, you know, and he does this for months. Mm-hmm. And he has, you know, what is this to do with karate? Are you just do, doing errands, uh, tasks for this person? And so eventually uh, the master shows him throws a punch, says, wax on, and it's a block. And he's so trained in his body that he just makes that motion. Ah. And that is one of the purposes of ritual, is that you are enacting a process which uh, is either, uh, sometimes comes from another, a teacher's uh, experience of awakening, is the process that they went through. Sometimes it's something that's come together over centuries of refinement of a certain sequence of reflections or whatever. But you are practicing this, and but just by doing it, if you, if you're doing it uh, with attention and letting it come into you, and this is why I talk about letting the practice work on you rather than you working on the practice trying to make something happen but you let the practice work on you, you find that these things have come into you and are available to you when you encounter situations in your daily life and you, and they just arise and you don't even think about them mm. and that. And so, the, I mean, the other analogy I was going to say, rituals, 
perform a very, very important part of every possible training, whether it's art or sports or uh, becoming a lawyer or a doc medicine, you know, rituals. Uh, we don't call them rituals. You sometimes training exercises and things like that. But the place of rituals is that uh, is very important whenever you are going to try to bring something into your whole being, which definitely means it has to come into the body. And you know very well, if it doesn't come into the body, it's not in your whole being. I mean, you musicians know this, but so do the uh, uh, special forces or the emergency uh, crews that uh, are deployed. I mean, they have this stuff so deeply in their body, they know what to do almost without looking at it because they mm. train so deeply. And the, you can look at all of these as forms of ritual. Now, I think the sticking point for many people about ritual, and I don't know what, whether this is the sticking point for you, Rob, is that people feel that they uh, have to inculcate a certain belief. Well, you are training in certain attitudes of mind and certain kinds of feelings. And one of the things that I attempted to do in this book, and from what uh, Stuart's comments at the beginning uh, were very encouraging this way, is uh, to show how you do this without falling into belief and without... Um, you know, uh, staying stuck in the sense of control. I think that those are, maybe there are other aspects, but those are the two I'm thinking of right now. Uh, belief makes bad religion. It also makes bad science. Yeah. Um, because in science, you are opening to all possibilities. And I mean, as someone once said, the most important words in science are not, aha, but, that's funny. And you're open to the unexpected. Uh, the same is true in uh, religious practice. If you come from a, 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 a sense of belief, which means you've, you're holding in yourself how things should be, and then trying to make everything conform to that, you're never going to get anywhere. Uh, you have to do the practices with confidence and faith, whatever you want in the practices and your teacher and whatever. And whatever comes up, you're going to work with it. And it's going to show you things about you. And that whole approach is very, very important. So, uh, and it's the same with ritual. I mean, Mundro, for instance, uh, the preparatory, often translated as preparatory practices by prefer to translate them as groundwork, uh, makes them, gives them their uh, appropriate role in the practice. They really are groundwork. Uh, these are just little rituals. You do again and again and again for exactly the reasons I just described. And uh, it's not about believing in. It's about having these practices work on you so that you are massaged and changed in a certain way, which makes it more possible for other kinds of experiences to arise and understandings. Thank you. I, um, I, so I, want, I have two uh, sets of personal experiences to, uh, with which to respond to that. Um, because I agree, I agree with, with everything you said. And I want to add 
Um, in terms of my response, my personal response as a child and youth to the Catholic rituals, that that I actually I became an altar boy, so I was I was doing a lot, doing it a lot. The, the mass ritual, for example, and other and other ones, and it mattered whether the priest was coming from a place where a context was where I had faith in a, in a context that that priest was establishing or maintaining or extending it, that mattered. And, and when the pre, when the, the person who's supposed to be the teacher was not maintaining a certain kind of context, the ritual was uh, a source of confusion, frustration without necessarily um, opening to something uh, greater than oneself, as you, were, as you were talking about before. Now, partly you have to take the good with the bad. I get that. Um, but, um, but it matters. The teacher matters, it seems to me, or the context of the teaching matters. So that's one comment. Second comment was I was uh, in my early 20s. I, um, I took a job that, in, that uh, required me to become an apprentice to eventually become a journeyman, literally uh, uh, administered by the state of California, actually, um, in the um, uh, field of lithography. And my first days and weeks, um, and this is getting back to your Karate Kid uh, discussion, required me to pick up large pieces of uh, clear and black lithographic film and filed them. And I, I was bored to tears and was annoyed that I had to keep doing this over and over and over. As you were telling the story about the Karate Kid, I realized actually what this was doing was giving me the experience of handling these large, sometimes quite large, often taped together pieces of film uh, with overlays and, and all kinds of uh, complications in such a way that I didn't destroy hours of work when I was uh, going to uh, create a lithographic plate to put on the printing press. So, so that's, that's, that's the, that's the example of, I didn't know what I was getting, but I became very good at, uh, at the whole process. And it started with, um, apparently useless work, uh, because the filing, it didn't really matter whether these things were filed in just the right way, because they rarely, people rarely would go back to them, but, um, but it served that apprentice mind purpose. Yeah. So, so, I, so, I, so I do want you to comment on the, uh, though, the, uh, uh, the first point I was making. <clears throat> well, as you're describing it, I, the thought I had in mind was that uh, this is a testament in some way to your spiritual sensitivity as when you were a young boy and uh, an adolescent, you could pick up on that. Not everybody does. Okay. And uh, there's endless debate about this, but the rituals themselves, I think, 
have a power, they have much greater power when they are performed with a person who is embodying the process that is being played out in the ritual. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if that person uh, doesn't have that ability, there's still some power in the ritual because it has been laid out that way. He put me in mind of the the, the first ritual I describe uh, in, in detail is uh, one that I wrote myself, which is the uh, magic of faith. Uh, in the, the Guru, uh, Guru Yoga and Teacher Union section. And what I took as the model for that, uh, a student of mine who attended a couple of retreats asked me to write such a practice, and this is what I came up with. And I had always been deeply inspired by uh, the founder of the Shankar tradition, which is one of the traditions that I studied in, uh, under my teacher. Uh, but this uh, the, uh, person called, uh, just translate his name into English for your readers, the uh, mystic of the Eagle clan. That's uh, what his name means. Um, but what, he went to India after years and years of searching through many teachers in Tibet uh, and studied with 150 teachers in India. Uh, <clears throat> which means he went around to one teacher after another uh, until he found uh, two uh, that really spoke to him very deeply. And the one that I uh, chose is this meeting uh, with uh, this woman called Nigama, who uh, <clears throat> was in many ways the female counterpart to Naropa and uh, some the exact relationship between the two is lost in history. But uh, he had to embark on this path. He didn't know where he was going. And uh, and I used the opening verses or the image from the opening verse of the uh, Divine Comedy, Dante's Divine Comedy, uh, to get the ball rolling here. And... Uh, and so you just go deeper and deeper following your faith and through different levels of faith. So when you actually practice this ritual, you find yourself moving through three levels of faith and then allowing yourself to, be, to rest in that with all the chaos of everything that's trying to pull you back into your ordinary way of functioning. And then there's this opening. And... Uh, which includes being prepared, as I think, to, to face your fate, uh, which is something that is actually necessary. Because if you're going to give up yourself, uh, your sense of self in this, you have to be prepared to meet whatever comes. And so when you're practicing this uh, ritual, you're going through those steps time and time again. And the idea is that it lays down a kind of template through which something can mature and uh, and a process will come back and that's that's the intention but all of the practices have that kind of uh, uh, idea behind them thank you there's a an analogy you use at one point in describing one of the practices which is that the the words or the prayers or the formula are like notes on a sheet of paper and that yeah the yeah, it's a score, and everyone knows the score is not the music. And obviously, you know, the simplistic or the dismissive view of, 
uh, rituals like this is, oh, how can saying these words make a difference? But you're describing that it's actually the performance or the embodiment of it that creates the transformative power. But you also are clear, and this, I think this is important to understand that it's, it's like a work in progress too, that, that you engage in the rituals and you do them over and over again, much like a, a musician would, would practice a, uh, a musical score. And there's certainly a phase where you're memorizing the parts and, you know, and it's, and it's awkward and it's annoying and things like that. But then when you've embodied or internalized the score, then something else is possible, which is uh, a much richer kind of relationship to the music. But there's still an element of trying to do something. You know, you're trying to, you're working out uh, how, how to perform. And then ultimately, there's another shift, which is that you just become the, the piece. And, and I, that, that analogy was very powerful for me to be, uh, because it it clarifies ritual work that it, it's it's a full three centered as we would say in the fourth way tradition experience that you're you're bringing body heart and mind in alignment in a particular way and when that's done that is transformative that some something will change and we can't know from our conceptual minds what that's going to be. Well, you're, that last sentence, you're leading into something which has become very important for me. Uh, Sufi saying, uh, there are many paths to God as there are souls in the universe. And I, I no longer feel that there is what, any one awakening or... Uh, because the experience and the experiences I've had with different teachers, uh, they're very, very different. And um, something has changed in them, but I wouldn't, uh, but what I would say is it's not the something that's important, it's the change that's important. And the, uh, and the change, this goes back to something you were saying earlier, Rob, the change seems to be a letting go of self-investment and experience. So there's, there's more, often more humor. Uh, there's uh, a simplicity. Uh, very frequently, there's a simplicity and clarity. I mean, my teacher was incredible in the way that he could answer very, very complex questions with a sentence or two and that was just it yeah. oh okay uh the uh geishas in dharamsala when the dalai lama asked him to come and teach the these are highly learned monks uh they who are expert in debate and they would they would ask him these very tricky questions you would answer them in a sentence or two and they go oh yeah and they, they wouldn't have any response and he wasn't arguing with them. He was just speaking from his own experience. And I think one of the great pities about uh, where we are with Buddhism in the West is that we're focused on this idea of enlightenment or awakening or whatever we want to call it. And we think there is one way to it or it, it takes one form. 
Uh, and I'm reminded uh, there's a Japanese uh, teacher whose books I really like, uh, particularly um, How to Cook Your Life uh, by Uchiyama. It's a commentary mm-hmm. on uh, Dogen's uh, instructions to the cook or the head chef. But in it, he quotes his own teacher. Uh, uh, it's Sawaka uh, Roshi, I think. Uh, something like that. It says, uh, <clears throat> once Uchiyama asked him, if I study and practice for 25 years, well, can I be something like you? <laughs> and, and they were very physically very different people. And his teacher replied in a big, booming voice, no. <laughs> <laughs> a violet cannot bloom as a rose. A rose cannot bloom as a violet. And uh, when we start out on the spiritual path, we don't know whether a violet, a rose, uh, or or a thorn, <laughs> or a thorn. Well, no, if you're a rose, you're, you've got thorns. But you know, in a, a, a daffodil or whatever, and uh, that's something we're going to discover. And again, uh, this puts me in line of a line from Rumi. Uh, you know, I. Uh, a white flower grows in the stillness. Let your tongue be that flower. Yes. So um, interwoven in the last, in your answer to my question and your comment on Stuart's last question is this uh, word faith. And it, it uh, is a word that you uh, uh, um, use in the book. Uh, not infrequently. Sometimes it feels to me in in somewhat different ways. But the thing I want to point to is you have a a footnote to a discussion of blind faith in the back of the book. And you define uh, or you write in this footnote, faith is a kind of knowing. That that idea right there is a different... formulation of faith than anyone I've seen before. And you go on, faith means that whatever you encounter, you meet it, open to it, see into it, and accept what you see or understand, even if it upsets or negates prior assumptions, understandings, or deeply held views. Faith suggests, if not reveals, that the reasoning mind is not the only way to know, It is not rational, but neither is it irrational because it comes from a place that does not use or need to use reason. Rational and irrational do not apply. That's your that's your footnote an incredibly intriguing one to me. Because it uh, entirely shifts what what the word faith might mean and what the experience of faith might be because uh, because sometimes in the west people use the phrase a person of faith and sometimes to to be honest with you um that gets used in such a way that um i distrust what the person of faith understands. And other times it express, it seems to embody an expression of 
the kind of person I would wish to see more of in the world. So, so, so I'd like you to, to describe how you came to this understanding, not just the understanding, which I've just, which I've just recounted your eloquent words about, but how did that arise for you? Because I think that's really interesting. Well, we have a problem in English. We have two words, faith and belief, which most dictionaries um, say are basically synonymous. But uh, so in one sense, you could say my choice here has been somewhat arbitrary, but I think there's basis to it that uh, I, I can't remember exactly when. Uh, but I, I came to see belief as a kind of closing down and faith, and then I, I started to use the word or feel that faith was kind of its opposite, an opening up. The... Faith is a kind of knowing, actually, is a relatively recent thing, which I think I got from a Catholic bishop somewhere or other. Oh, my God. <laughs> awesome. Uh, but I, I, I would say, sometimes something in you knows, but you don't know how you know. Sure. And so you, you just do it, even if everybody tells you, no, this is the wrong thing to be doing. And uh, and mistakes can be made here, of course, but uh, but sometimes it turns out that some some part of you that knew actually did know and pointed you in the right direction. Uh, and being able to discern that kind of knowing from the closing down of belief, which is you know uh, interpreting the world in terms of an emotional stance that is already being uh, instilled. Uh, that can be tricky, and I think uh, so. Uh, and a, lo- a lot of people fool themselves, and it, uh, and that's one reason to study with uh, teachers who can tell you, maybe not always accurately, even uh, whether you're succumbing to belief or this is a, uh, an exercise of faith. Uh, I've there are a couple of people. Uh, uh, writers uh, Wittgenstein certainly played a role in this uh, there's a little booklet called Aesthetics Mor- uh, Morals and uh, Religion or something uh, which uh, is a series of uh, transcriptions of a series of conversations that people had with Wittgenstein and he defines uh, that, uh, when he, he looks at the word the phrase believe in uh, or the, the word believe, and points out that it is used in at least two very, very different ways. I believe there's a jet plane flying overhead. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, uh, I believe in God. And uh, one of the thing, exercises I've taken to walking some people through lately is... Uh, do you believe in gravity, Rob? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> normally, I would say yes, 
But in this context of this conversation, I'm not going to make that mistake. <laughs> Why would it be a mistake? It would be a mistake because it is a, uh, a, a, a an identification with an abstraction. I would say it goes further than that. Okay. Gravity is a fact. If you say, I believe in gravity, you are immediately uh, giving the possibility that it is only an idea and not a fact. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Got it. And you can extend that to, do you believe in love? And do you believe in God? And I think I, I think that most people, when they say, ask somebody, do you believe in God, aren't realizing that the question already uh, contains the presupposition that, that God is something arbitrary and not real. Hmm. Uh, and, that's, that's interesting, because I was, I was going to, do you believe in capitalism, which is a very common uh Yes, idea. but that's a different. That's a different use of it. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so what Wittgenstein points out is that when you use a phrase like "Do you believe in God?", you're actually talking about a different relationship with life, and that takes us back to where we started this conversation. That's about a different relationship with life. Another book that had a great influence and, and corroborated my decision to distinguish between faith and belief is a book by James Carse, who is a professor, I suppose, of either religious studies or philosophy. I'm not sure which. One of the New York universities. Um, he wrote a number of books, but he wrote a book called The Religious Case Against Belief. And I found it a very interesting book because he argues against belief in the practice of religion in the same way that one would argue against belief in the practice of science. For instance, if you read that passage again about the, the, the four steps in faith, mm-hmm. that's exactly how you practice science. You know, could you look that up and read it, or is it too much trouble? Um, I think. Are you talking about the, um, the, the... The note on blind faith. Yes. Faith is a kind of knowing. Faith means that whatever you encounter, you meet it, open to it, see into it, and accept what you see or understand, even if it upsets or negates prior assumptions, understandings, or deeply held views. Exactly. That's how you practice science. Right. And if you don't practice science that way, you're not practicing science. It's also how you practice religion. And if you aren't practicing religion that way, you're not practicing religion. You're just reinforcing patterns within oneself. This is the kind of thing that makes me really popular in certain circles. <laughs> well, but I think yeah, this gets true. back to the to the distinction that that uh, you attributed the uh, the sensitive youth that I was supposedly um, uh, about the way that rituals can be embodied. You and- knew when. The uh, priest right. was there. Faith is a higher form of knowing. Okay. 
Yeah. Interesting. I, I mean, that makes sense to me. I, 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 I appreciate the phrasing of it as a higher form of knowing it, it, it kind of, I can relate to that. Like I relate to something like conscience, which is a kind of knowing that's not moral. That's not a moral knowing. It's a, uh, it's this, in the Gurdjieff work, they're called uh, being impulses or divine being impulses. And they, mm-hmm. it, and it speaks to something that is coming from a higher, a higher quality of knowing that uh, we can participate in and have access to if we don't override them with our conceptual uh, categories and things like that. And, and our, our reactive patterns and everything that we, want to maintain rather than meet what is actually coming at us. Yeah. Mind you, yeah. I, I had to be pried loose from that stuff, you know, with crowbars. <laughs> it, took a, it took a while. There, there's one, one um, arena I wanted to ask about in the, uh, it sort of touches on this and it touches on uh, ritual. Uh, you describe somewhere, actually quite poignantly, uh, how, if someone, I, I think it was in deity, it might have been the teacher union practice, but it might have been in the, the deity practice uh, section. But it was how, how a, if someone has been doing this 25 years and does not find that it's done anything, it's because they haven't uh, left the conceptual in their relationship to the practice. And you described three layers of uh engagement one is conceptual which one is visualization and then one is uh uh, the more of the direct open sort of empty engagement and i was interested i i got the conceptual pretty clearly uh in terms of what that might mean but the visualization one was interesting because you were introducing another kind of layering or another kind of othering that we do in relation to these practices that keep us from fully being subsumed by uh, the the space of the practice. And I was wondering if you could talk about that kind of threefold engagement. Not quite sure. What, uh, I, I, I can respond to your question, but I'm not sure that uh, I'm thinking of the same section that you are. Was it where I say, uh, imagine visualizing Tara, imagine, or no, uh, visualize Tara, imagine Tara, and be Tara. Was that it, that section? It's probably, probably, it may well have been. I mean, it, it, was, yeah. a, it was a comment really to speak into a reader who might be reading this saying, hey, I've done these practices and nothing's happened. And, yeah. and, and it first starts with, I think I may be conflating two sections because uh, in, in one section you talked about not getting out of the conceptual, but in another section you actually distinguish visualization as another uh, obstacle uh, to. Yes. to okay. Yeah. And and and, I, and that's that that threw me off a little bit because I was thinking, hey, you know, the instructions are to visualize. What's going on here? What do you mean? Well, are they? Well, that's the question. Yeah, that's that's what I wanted to get into here because it's a it's actually a really subtle point, and it's a actually and it's an, an important point for me in my engagement with uh, uh, magical ritual work because yeah. you're, you're pointing to something I I don't think I quite saw. Well, it'll be interesting to talk about this with you. Uh, I think not not just in. Uh, 
Tibetan magical uh, uh, rituals. The, the, but I think in Western magic uh, also, uh, where you lay out a mandala and then you visualize various forms at different points in the mandala or the diagram or whatever. Uh, and I think this... Uh, is reinforced both by the sense of control that permeates modern thinking and also the tendency to take everything or uh, literally that there is only one way. So uh, if I'm visualizing something, something in me should see it in some way, though it's obviously not your eyes, you know, there's the visual cortex in the brain, you know, I mean, you get into a whole bunch of stuff that we don't need to get into. But the idea is that if I'm not seeing it, then I'm not doing it properly. And, uh, but at the same time, as, as long as one is trying to visualize, there's a very definite sense of self exerting effort. And, and, a, and a judgment on whether you're doing it correctly or not. <laughs> Exactly. And that keeps you very firmly in the conceptual mind. It keeps you very firmly in the sense of self. So one exercise that I've started doing with people uh, is ask them, you know, uh, take white Tara or take, you know, you, you're working with deities in the African tradition. Is that right? Uh, yes. So take, pardon? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So take one of those deities and visualize yourself as him or her or it, whatever the appropriate. Okay? And just feel that for a moment. Now, I think you can probably feel there's the sense of me here and the visualization there. Yeah. Right? Okay. Now, let's move it a step closer. Imagine being that deity. White Tara, if we're in the Tibetan tradition or Chenrezig or whatever, it doesn't matter. That feels to me anyway a little bit closer. Yeah. But now I'd like you to throw all of that away. Just be the deity right now. What happens? Hmm. There's a shift. Yeah, there's a shift and it's more immediate. Yeah. And there isn't any intermediary in there. Yeah. Okay. So what I encourage people to do in this, in in the discussion of deity meditation, but applies everywhere, is is to take that experience and from that not to be so concerned with seeing something because that's what visualization means to most people. Rather, put the emphasis on being. Because in Tibetan Buddhism, the the deity is, particularly in the case of White Tara, it applies really to all the deities, but is the union of emptiness and compassion. And if we just stop and say, okay, let me be the union of emptiness and compassion. Something shifts in us. We can feel something in the body. Mm-hmm. We may That's, not be able to stay there for very long, but that is where it starts. 
But that's and right. Read, go ahead, Rob. I was just going to say that's a, I was I was following along in my own way. You were addressing Stuart in this, but I did. I uh, and, and it's all about the body, at least for me, um, in that in the, those few moments. It's yeah. about a body, a bodily experience. Yeah. Yeah, I know that, 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 that's, that's quite clear because it says so in a way, to paraphrase what you're describing, you know, a conceptual relationship or even a visualization uh, relationship uh, doesn't, it, it's in the way of getting it in the body. And it's really the embodiment. Like, and it's, as you said, you know, the shift, the shift when you say be the deity is suddenly like I'm in the body. And feeling the it's energy. Interesting, of that. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and um, I, I, I want to. I, I also want to mention this is for anyone listening to this uh, who's considering reading the book. Is that particularly at the at the moment I read the section on the the uh, white Tara deity practice? You know, I, I would read through the the ritual instructions, and it was very powerful because you know I was invited to embody that and and it was actually it had juice to it uh, uh you know and i just want to emphasize that if nothing else that demonstrates the juice and the tradition that like, like uh and and i think it was facilitated by your instruction to be be it you know it wasn't this abstraction of like think you know seeing tara over there it was like tara like i'd look at my arms you know and i'd see white you know i'd, I'd see you know I'd, I'd feel the emptiness uh uh you're, you're already pretty white though <laughs> that's true <laughs> but what, I, what i want to move people away from is the idea that they if they don't see anything, then they aren't doing the practice properly. I, I think that's been a huge yes. problem for many, many people. Whereas <clears throat> if you take the mantra money pay me hung, for instance, and you, you just say to yourself, let me be Avalokiteshvara, Chen Rei Zi, you know, or uh, awaken compassion, say. And three different languages there. Uh and then you say the mantra on money pay me home, feeling that you are that. Well, that's deity practice. Uh, and you're allowing the sense of emptiness and compassion to quietly pervade your whole being. And if it doesn't isn't active in the body, then it's not pervading your whole being, of course. Uh, and it's it's that quality of letting the practice work on you rather than you doing the practice. And this goes back to what we were discussing earlier, like with your lithographs. Mm-hmm. You know, you were doing all of this filing. Your body was learning how to handle these, so it just became part of you. Right. That's what we're doing here. Uh, and, it doesn't, you know, you, you train in sports or in martial arts to the point that, the my the conceptual mind doesn't even figure in what happens. That's what we're doing here, but people don't relate it to this. They, uh, you know, the, it it's, comes with all the the, the religious uh, associations and belief associations and all of the stuff which has been increasingly problematic in our society as a whole. I would say. Because when something is just a concept or just a belief, 
then it become it tends to become very extreme. True faith that is rooted in the body never becomes extreme because you're dealing with what's in front of you, not your idea of what's in front of you. Like our experience of gravity. <laughs> yeah. You don't want you don't want to believe in gravity because you think, well, you know, I, I don't believe in gravity anymore. Okay, walk off a cliff, uh, Wiley Coyote. <laughs> exactly. So, so you touch on something here that uh, is an uh, important aspect of the book uh, is its power and its authenticity. Um, you describe times when you're engaged in these practices where you really struggle or they don't, they don't work well, or they don't seem to be working or, uh, or they're actually it, they're usually are working extremely well. Well, well yeah, <laughs> Maybe, yeah, I guess, I guess but, I should admit but, that, but, but the, but the conceptual mind to, doesn't to, go there. to the, uh, the uh, identified person doing the practice. They didn't seem to be doing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, well. I mean, you describe uh, times where you would, uh, uh, uh be subject to illness, doing a set of practices, or you describe times where your pe- teacher would do an empowerment and it didn't seem like anything was happening. You know, it's like you didn't notice anything, and yet the faith comes in in a sense where you you I don't know if you knew that then or came to see this, but that seeds were planted, that something 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 was started. And that the purpose of ongoing practice and ritual, and your as we're describing, is to feed those seeds such that uh, something grows. Yeah, I mean, that, I, I think Rob's example of lithography, his, his uh, apprenticeship as a lithographer, is exactly in point. He didn't know uh, that this, the filing of these uh, photographs you know, that are intricately taped together in a certain way, et cetera, et cetera, was a training. He thought it was just a task and one that he resented. Uh, But he did it. uh, Why? Uh, Out of faith, maybe, Uh, you know, just like, well, this is what I have to do with it. I want to become an apprentice. I want to become a lithographer. And here I am. So I'll do this task. And it was only some years later, he went, you know, that was damn useful. I'm glad I did that. To to this day, I uh, when I have to uh, use tape, you know, from a tape dispenser, I automatically, uh, you know, if I'm if I'm taping uh, the wrapping for a present, um, I pick one, two, maybe three pieces of tape, have them on my three uh, three fingers in the middle of my hand, and I'm able to to apply them, apply them, apply them. It's so much more efficient. I don't even think about it. It's and and then I watch other people using the tape dispenser and they're fumbling and they're uh, uh, it's not that they're wrong or bad or anything. It's just that, oh, my body knows how to do this. I don't have to think about it whatsoever. Yeah. Same applies to martial arts. And it's the same kind of training, the same quality in the training that one uh, needs to cultivate in this. I mean, if you're going to move out of the conceptual mind, that's which is what mysticism, for me at least, is about, then the practice, you have to practice moving out of the conceptual mind. <laughs> hey, there, there's a, a, a section in the book that um, actually is a little bit of a contrast to this uh, uh, because we're talking about rituals and all these kinds of uh, practices. You describe a retreat you were on where the instruction was to do nothing. 
it's one of the most affecting parts of it. Yeah, and I, I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit because that's a powerful section of the book, both in terms of its authenticity, but also the the clarity and, of what you're. And and I, and I want to 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 potential readers, I, I want to say, um, it's not just a, a couple of paragraphs. Yeah, you go through the um, experience of attempting to do this on a retreat over several weeks and uh, and list and describe the incredible frustrations and uh, uh, ups and downs, I guess. Yeah. And it's very, it's very, it's a really, um, it's a touching part of the book. So what do you want me to touch on, Stuart? Well, just, just, uh, just to at least to frame out that um, the power of doing nothing and, and, the challenge of doing nothing and what that exposes about our constitutions uh, and the brilliance of that instruction in the context of actually confronting you with all the myriad ways that we are caught up in doing unconsciously. I I think I want to, uh, I'll do my best. I, I want to throw up a note of caution first, which is well recorded in the Tibetan tradition. Uh, Melarapa, probably the most famous of the Tibet's many mountain hermits, uh, originally uh, was swindled out of his inheritance, and his mother charged him to wreak vengeance. To do so, he enlisted with a sorcerer who practiced black magic and became sufficiently adept that he was able to uh, murder the swindler and his family, killing 37 people in all, after which he had some regrets. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> oh, that didn't feel right. Uh, went to study with a uh, Dzogchen teacher uh, who taught, who said, oh, yes, no problem, uh, and taught him a, a practice called Buddhahood Without Meditation, which you can get that book on Amazon now. And uh, essentially, uh, he said, you know, you you practice in the morning, you'll be awakened in the day, and if you practice in the evening, you'll be awakened in the night. And you just don't, you just do nothing. That was his practice instruction. So Milarepa did nothing. He just filed away the time. Nothing happened. And a couple of weeks later, the teacher came to check up on him, how he was doing, realized Little Rapa had no idea what it, the instruction meant and sent him off to Marpa. So a lot of people think that doing nothing literally means doing nothing. Well, most people can't do nothing for more than a breath. And you know, the basic meditation instruction is put attention on the breath. Well, how long does that last? Well, I was distracted. No, something in you started doing something. (laughs) That's what distracted you. It's a slightly different way of looking at things, if you see what I mean. So, this instruction was given on the understanding that everybody had done all the groundwork, which is, you know, a good year's practice, basically, especially in modern 
uh, culture. In retreat, we did all the all the, the uh, groundwork in four months at the beginning of every three year retreat. But living in in the modern world, most people would probably might be able to do it in a year. Uh, and that is to prepare body and mind. And all the deity practices, everything like that, all of it is actually preparation for being able to sit and do nothing. And one of the key components of all of that preparation is that bit by bit, here and there in different ways, you're learning to relate to experience without the investment of self in it. Oh, that's such a beautiful flower. I want it, or I want to hold on to that memory. These are all the ways we invest in our uh, in our experience. So, <clears throat> because when you when you sit and you do nothing, whatever arises, you're not going to do anything with it. So, you think of someone that you're deeply attracted to. Well, you're just going to feel that attraction, and you're not going to do anything with it. Well, that could be pretty hard for some people. And I mean, I I have to let this attraction go? Uh, Well, you don't have to let it go. You just don't do anything with it. That's even worse in some ways. (laughs) Same with anger, pride, jealousy, all of these things. Regrets about the past. I'm not going to do anything with it. I'm not going to do any retribution. I'm not, not going to do anything with anything that arises. Pain in the body. No, just sit there, experience it. Uh, as you can see, this gets a little difficult after a while. Uh, and if you're able to maintain a sense of attention, allowing stuff just to come and go and come and go, then as I write in this piece, you begin to become aware that everything arises in a space. So in every, we we ordinarily think of stillness and movement as opposites. But when you sit this way, you become aware that even in stillness, there's an awful lot of movement. Mm -hmm. And you also become aware that, as Rob was describing with his taping example, in movement, if it's really deeply inculcated, there's stillness. And that's what expert athletes and martial artists and other people are training, to be able to execute movement in utter stillness. And the same with uh, the other examples, uh, the body and sense of depth and silence and sound and so forth and thought and emptiness. And, and you become aware that to do nothing means that you have to let go of absolutely everything. It's not so easy. You're just going to let experience what arises and you're going to do nothing with it. And this is referred to in other traditions. I mean, uh, Rumi writes, uh, you know, uh, invite, invite everybody. When you sit down to meditate, invite everybody. Greet everybody as a guest. Mm-hmm. And Ajahn Chah in the Theravadan tradition uh, put a chair in the middle of the room. Sit in the chair. 
see who comes to visit. It's the same instruction. Yeah, we, we uh, recently uh, uh, met with a teacher in a uh, non-dual tradition who distinguished stillness and silence and would say that you can have silence uh, and not be still, and you can be still with no silence. And, yes, yeah. And, and that, that's, I f- found that a succinct, succinct way to, you know, reflect on how often in meditation we're like pushing stuff away yeah you know, to, to keep create a, a silence when uh uh it, but we're not still because there's all this stuff going on yeah and in the course of this anything that is unresolved in your psyche or personality or your, even in your body is going to come to the surface and that can be very, very difficult to experience. But still, you do nothing with it. So that's why, as I write in the book, I thought, yeah, I was good for about, it was a 21-day retreat. I was good for about 14 days. And then something in me really wanted to start doing something. And I thought, geez, what would it be like to do this for a year? Just do nothing. You know, when your body gets tired, okay, just go for a walk or something like that. But you still got to do nothing while you're walking. And it, it moves you into a totally different way of experiencing things. So one of the uh, uh, features uh, of the book is uh, your discussion of uh, Samaya, as you describe it, the ethics uh, of Adriana. In fact, it's the, uh, I think it's, uh, it's a note that's some, it's close to a page and a half long, by far the longest uh, note I think you have. And, and um, it touches on some of the things I've seen elsewhere, not necessarily about Samaya, the, that, that word or that, uh, that Sanskrit, Sanskrit word or concept, but, um, but you distinguish between how, how Samaya, which uh, you define as commitment, um, uh, how that manifests for the teacher and how that manifests for the student. In recent uh, decades in the West, the focus has always been, uh, at least the, the, the generalized public focus has been on the uh, mistakes or uh, uh, the ethical failings of teachers as beings of power um, who have power over others. But one of the things, one of the features of your discussion of Smaya is the, um, the commitment of the student and how that shapes and can be a learning tool in her or his experience. So I'm, I'm wondering if, if, um, if you could just briefly for our, for our listeners, because I think this is a really, uh, it's a fraught point in, in our cultural moment, it seems to me. And first of all, start with why is commitment about ethics? I mean, I, would, I have an answer, but I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. second 
My computer is almost out of juice. Oh. Uh, well, the following uh, Jonathan Haidt and uh, Peter Sloterdijk, I've come to make a clear distinction between morality and ethics. <clears throat> and uh, morality I see as uh, primarily about how a group decides who belongs and doesn't belong. That's one of three components in Haidt's uh, view of it. Uh, Peter Sloterdijk puts it slightly differently. He says it's part of the autoimmune system, uh, system of a group. And ethics I see as uh, how you live and act that is supports or as an expression of your practice. And so we have legal ethics and medical ethics. Uh, this is how a doctor acts in these situations. This is what a lawyer does in these situations. Uh, <clears throat> and that's a commitment. You know, if you're going to be a lawyer, then you have, you're going to observe legal ethics. If you're going to be a spiritual practitioner, then you're going, or a Vajrayana practitioner in this case, then you're going to observe the ethics. But what what are the ethics? Again, around that, there is a lot of confusion, and that's why I make. Uh, I think you will notice that I, I, even though I talk about commitment, I also talk about connection in the same breath. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a discussion with a. Uh, a scholar in when I was in Houston, a woman called Sarah Jones, who has translated a, uh, the biography of one of the great uh, Dzogchen teachers of the 20th century, uh, Sarah Kondra, a woman who lived in far eastern Tibet. And uh, in our conversation, she brought up an instance where the word Damtsik, which is the Tibetan word for Samaya, is uh, clearly meant connection. And I thought, oh, that's very interesting. And so uh, in the discussion of White Tara, I decided to translate it not as commitment being, i.e. being that you're committed to it, but connection being the being you're connected to. So I think it gives a better flavor for it. Mm. So, <clears throat> and in, uh, in, in thinking this through for this book, uh, there's so much confusion about this word because people think of samaya as keeping your commitment to your teacher. It's often phrased that way. And so the teacher says, well, you have to do this practice every day. People go to a hundred apartments, then they've got a hundred practices to do every day. Uh, doesn't work very well. And obviously not everybody's doing that. So it has to mean something different. And, I chose for the purposes of this book and for to clarify things, and this is the understanding that I've come to myself, 
And I've talked with other Vajrayana practitioners and thinking of another woman I know on, uh, who, in New York, uh, that Samaya is your connection with awakening uh, or your commitment to awakening, whichever, whichever way you want to uh, express it. But I'm going to say it, it is not, uh, and, and Vajrayana particularly, it's not, I am going to get awakened. I am going to get awakened. It's, that's not, you know, what you think about as a commitment. It is, oh, and it's touching the a moment of awakening in each moment of experience. Now, of course, none of us can do that. I mean, even Patra Rinpoche said practice, you know, Samaya is like dust landing on a, in, uh, holding a mirror in a sandstorm, <laughs> trying to keep the sand off. Uh, but that's the essential idea in, in, in this commitment or this connection is that, and that's the essential theme in Vajrayana, as I explained to what the Vajra refers to, is this wakefulness that is present in every moment of experience. And to the extent possible, one's trying to live from that. Now, it gets gummied up with all the, what are often interpreted as prescriptions. It's also important to remember that ethics in Buddhism is descriptive. It's how an awake person acts. Uh, and But this is because of the institutionalization of it has become a series of prescriptions. Well, you have to do this, and you have to do this, you have to do this. And, or you can't do this, you can't do that. Would, would yeah. you agree? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There all these do's and don'ts. Right. Well, if you're practicing that way, you're practicing directly from the conceptual mind. And that can be helpful. It can guard against things. And that's why there are three levels of this in Vajrayana. I talk about this and wake up to your life, actually. Uh, but and, and people fool themselves all the time in that they think they're coming from an awake place in themselves, and it's just one of their patterns running. And I don't know, I can't speak for the internal mindset of teachers who've run into uh, difficulties in this area. Uh, all I know is that if I'm being brutally honest with myself and coming from a place of clarity, then all of the other aspects of uh, ethics just come into play quite naturally. I mean, your commitment to treat people kindly, uh, to be honest, you know, all, all of the usual stuff is just there. And it would only be in really exceptional circumstances that you would depart from that. Uh, very rarely, uh, where you, you might be brusque, uh, with someone or say something pointed because, oh, no, they need a little pointing to here. And I've done that very, very occasionally. Uh, <clears throat> and the other thing is that this is a, a very deep commitment, but what are you committed to? And it's really, you're committed to awakening. Uh, and yes, your relationship with your teacher is very important. But if, and in many ways, your relationship with your teacher is a door to awakening because for whatever time you're with that person, you're regarding him or her as embodying or being able to transmit the, those qualities to you in some way. 
But if you reach a point where, because of the person's actions, you say, this is, this, that's just not right. And, uh, or for any other reason, you feel you can no longer learn from that person, then you take your leave. There's nothing wrong with that. And there's a very yeah. famous case from the story, uh, from the life story of Atisha, where he wanted to study bodhicitta and his teacher was not in favor of it. And he said, well, thank you very much. And his teacher was very, very angry with him. But Atisha made offerings, thanked him for what he had received and went his way. Uh, and it's very important when you do so not to repudiate your teacher. That's that because you're repudiating something that's part of you. But when you see behaviors or things like that, and you can't come to terms with them, uh, and, and it becomes a problem in your relationship, then if you need to, you leave. Uh, but you keep your commitment to awakening. And I talk about this in chapter two, two, one or two of uh, Wake Up to Your Life as well, exactly the same thing. Hmm. So, um, but I want to make a... a, a a subtle distinction here. Sure. You're speaking about being committed to awakening. This discussion of Samaya in uh, The Magic of Vajrayana spoke to me because of the way I understood what I was doing about five months into my engagement with my teacher as a commitment to the direction of awakening. Okay. Not not a commitment to awakening, because I think when you frame it as a commitment to awakening, that does at least subtly uh, introduce what, what Buddhism would, would call an attachment to self. And um, and that has that. Um, that has been a really important distinction for, for me, because if I'm. Not, not that I, not that I've been uh, clear about that the entirety of of, of my uh, decades of practice at all, but that's like a low uh, uh, a north star um, of guiding me my practice in the sense that um, it's not about me awakening, it's about the direction of awakening, and then and then the, and then the connection comes. Uh, aspect that you're that you're discussing can come in does that make sense to you uh, it completely rob and i think it could be a very useful distinction um for a lot of people for precisely the reasons you describe uh the reason i talk about commitment to awakening is that uh i'm using it in a slightly different way that uh it's to the moment of awakening that is present in every moment of experience ah, okay you yeah. see, and in that there is a letting go of self. There's just a, that recognition, etc. And uh, and so that's a slightly different twist on it. Yeah, I, mean, I think it comes up because you you have that commitment in your relationship to your teacher, but your relationship to your deity and your relationship to the protectors as well. Yeah, and and, and but you also get into that in the. Um, the last full chapter of the book living practice, which is how how does this all, how does this all come together? Ken's helpful hints 
to the practitioner. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> really, I, I, I'm, I, I know it sounds like I, like I'm uh, slightly not taking it seriously, but actually, um, they are helpful hints. They are. They do distill a lot of uh, what the rest of the book offers. It seems to me. I find finding a succinct formulation that you can carry around in your head very easily really helpful. And my teacher had an extraordinary ability to express complex or answer complex questions very directly and very very succinctly. And I don't know whether I inherited that from him or from my training in mathematics or whatever, but I just enjoy boiling something down until it becomes like a flower or a crystal or something like that. And then and then you have something that you can literally carry in your pocket and you never you never let it go. So well, you, you, yeah. those, are, those are some of the ones that I found helpful. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, some of them are exactly the same as ones that I got from my teacher. This too will pass is something. Oh my God, does that come in handy <laughs> at certain moments? <laughs> yeah, really, yes. And uh, but for instance, the the one I I mentioned earlier, uh, return to what is already there and rest. It took me quite a long time to figure that one out, but I found it really helpful yeah. for myself personally, but also for people that I've uh, I've taught. Uh, my teacher's favorite one was uh, rest in just recognizing. And there the attempt is just to you recognize, and then you're in the you're awake in your experience, even if it's only for a microsecond. And uh, so. But other teachers have one. I mean, the uh, all of the mind training teachings uh, were the same kind of thing, and I found many of them helpful. Like, uh, don't make practice a sham. That is, like a, you're performing practice rather than doing it. Things like that. Nice. Right. Yeah. Go ahead. No, no, no. I, I, I was just going to say, I was just remembering uh, uh, the Korean Zen master's uh, uh, Sons and Names uh, quip, only don't know. Yes, that's another one. Yeah. Right. Uh, I think, I mean, broadening the scope here a little bit, I was very fortunate because I received two educations in my life. One was modern education in mathematics, and second was a pre-modern education in uh, Tibetan Buddhism. And uh, one, of the th- one of the things that I was trying to do in the book is to show people how to approach the wisdom of these older traditions without regressing psychologically, uh, without thinking, oh, we know better than that now. Because in many respects, we don't. In fact, I would say our culture has succumbed so much to the materialist view and the rationalist view that we have really forgotten how to know in other ways. And part of the book, and I I don't do this explicitly, but I, I... 
in a way, the book is a long argument for valuing other ways of knowing, particularly in the, in, in the spiritual domain. Uh, and I think I think people need to develop some relationship with that because otherwise they are so spiritually naive that they can be taken in and misled and, and not rely on their own sense of knowing. Uh, Stephen Batchelor once said that, uh, I'm paraphrasing somewhat, but I found it very useful that uh, Buddhism provides very powerful answers to questions of the spirit, but sometimes the power of the answers overwhelms the stammering voice that is asking the questions. <laughs> I think the starting place has to be the stammering voice, not the powerful answers. Hmm. And oh. To the extent possible, I hope that people who read this book will be encouraged to listen to their stammering voice. Well, I, think, I think that uh, it's a very important contribution in spiritual literature, particularly for, for exactly what you're saying, because even though it's the magic of Vajrayana, as we said at the outset of this conversation, that it applies to any practice or religion, really, that has its roots in a pre-modern, as you put it, way of knowing. And it's a powerful and necessary message today. Uh, it's in a modern voice, but it takes seriously these uh, pre-modern ways of knowing and provides a, con- a way of approaching them and a way of being with them such that they can actually be revivified in, in people in their practice. Well, but also also um, the tendency is to assume that we know more than all other human beings who have ever existed yeah, before us. Modernism. So. Yeah. And, and well, we do in one area. Well, yes, but it gets extended all too readily and easily. <laughs> yeah. Or, or, or we, does, doesn't yeah. Or we don't have the humility to, to see the modern way of knowing as a way of knowing, not the way of knowing. And, and I think, yes, that, I think that's well, well said. I agree. And I, and I think that's why this book is so uh, uh, powerful contribution. Well, we're close to the end of our time. And, you know, I, I think that there's so many questions that we had uh, that we and ways that we could go deeper into the material of the book. So maybe we can save that for subsequent conversations as we've uh, talked about, but for at least this uh, initial discussion, you know, we really, it was a very uh, great, you know, uh, it's been a real help to yeah, me personally in engaging book. with this book, yeah, a it, real personal help. Yeah. Uh, there are so many points of congruency with my own practice, exactly. which is unrelated to Vajrayana. And that's the point I was making at the very beginning, is, is that um, this is not just a book for Vajrayana yeah, practitioners. It, it sharpens the practice of any spiritual practitioner, regardless of the tradition. And then in, that, in that sense, I think uh, many people are going to find it very interesting. I think, I think and I hope that it, that, that we'll all be surprised at uh, the popularity of this book because I think it uh, has a powerful message. Oh, now uh, you're getting into his critique of success. Yeah, Come on, Stuart. Don't end there. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, but, I, I'm glad you guys have found it helpful to you personally. And 
and I wrote it because uh, I thought that there were a whole generation of practitioners out there who it's difficult translating from one culture to another. It's one thing to translate some unspoken words. It's another thing to translate the spoken text. It's a very different thing when you start translating rituals and practices and traditions. And uh, in a certain sense, this book is a further exercise in the skills that I've developed as a translator. And, uh, and then, you know, if, if I hope very much it will help people. And you're suggesting it may help people more, a a larger number of people than I had originally envisioned when I wrote the book. So that would be wonderful. Well, thank you so much for this uh, uh, very enjoyable discussion and, and, and helpful to me discussion. Well, I always enjoy talking with you guys because you come to these things with a wonderful openness and uh, the other thing I like is that we let each other finish our sentences. Well, mostly. mostly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think I'll leave it there. <laughs> you better. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Ken McLeod about his latest book, The Magic of Vajrayana. As a bonus segment in the following, we present a book event that Ken gave at Mini Rivers Books and Tea on March 23, 2023. This conversation includes an extensive moderated question and answer segment with a live audience. Welcome to the third um, Thursdays at Many Rivers event of uh, 2023. We seem to be on a monthly schedule. And before I uh, introduce our speaker for the evening, I want to mention next month's um, event, which will be four weeks from today, I believe, on April 20th. Our speaker is sitting over here in the front row, Meg Levy from Stone Creek Zendo. And we will be... um, very happy to um, have her tell us what she's doing at Stone Creek. Um, and since she uh, came along about a year ago, right. she informed me. Mm-hmm. So that's our uh, that's our next event. We're not doing the usual, or what was previously the usual weekly thing because I'm getting old, <laughs> and um, it's a lot of work to get all this together. But I'm glad to see the turnout today. Thank you all for coming. And um, I will be happy to introduce uh, our speaker, but um, in introducing him, I want to talk about the book, really, because that's the occasion for this for this talk. And um, by way of doing that, I need to present a little background, and that is that I'm not a Tibetan practitioner. In fact, all the many years that I've that I studied with my teacher, who's now deceased, long deceased. Um, he was uh, respectful of the uh, Vajrayana tradition, and I never quite grasped why. Not that there was a reason to be disrespectful that I had any reason to credit or any experience you know, that would support that view, but I just didn't get it. I simply didn't get what 
fragments of understanding could never coalesce for me. And I've been uh, friends with our speaker for a number of years now, since he moved uh, to Sonoma County, or shortly thereafter. And this book was the key for me. So, so that's um, part of my introduction. But it's the key because it is an incredibly personable, personal, and as well as personable book. Um, it has information, and it led me to grasp on a heart level why people would engage in Vajrayana practice. In fact, why people people I deeply respect, other people than Ken, who, uh, who, um, who I, I treasure, people I respect have obviously gotten a lot out of Vajrayana practice. But this book allows me to understand why to a considerable extent. And um, moreover, um, the book is... Come on in. Uh, I think there's a chair over there. I don't know if you can get around that way, but maybe you can. <laughs> anyway, um, The Magic of Vajrayana... Um, I think of as actually not entirely unlike a work of art as I have studied novels. I'm a science fiction fan for 63 years, I guess it would be. And I um, have long sought to understand how the arc of a story that can move me is shaped or can be shaped and this book has that has those features it's quite unusual <laughs> um, that's why in my uh, descriptive uh, uh, email about this talk I said it was unique as far as I know it is unique um, and it is unique for for those two reasons uh, that I've just uh, mentioned and the personal aspect uh, informs the the whole of the enterprise of what Ken's trying to do with the book, or so so I understand it to do. So that's um, that's in part my my introduction to Ken. I have um, uh, come to be aware that he has many many books over here prior to this one. In fact, he has told me that. Magic of Adriana is a uh, part of a triptych um, of these two volumes, but there are others as well, and this is this is one of my favorites. But but um, I've come to understand that the um, integrity of practice that is expressed in this book is al actually also expressed in Ken's life. So that's that's the highest encomium I think I know. <laughs> so, um, table, what's that? Can I crawl into the <laughs> Well, not yet to demonstrate it, baby. <laughs> anyway, welcome to this talk. Um, welcome, Ken, 
to um, this event at Many Rivers. We're, we're being very selective now in our events, and um, so it pleases me to welcome you as well as uh, all the audience. Now, Ken has said that he, he is happy to field questions. So, questions, um, the, the, the table is open to, to questions. But I'm going to get started with some, with some questions because I think I've already sufficiently embarrassed Ken that his, uh, his, his, um, uh, his no-thought mind may already be engaged. <laughs> so that's, that's a test right there. But what I want to say about this book, in addition to what I've already said, is that it is really interesting to me, because in recent years I've begun to, in my own practice, to value ritual in a way that I formerly eschewed, having come up from four years of, uh, well, six years of Catholic parochial school, among, along that way, four years of being a, um, an altar boy in uh, the Catholic tradition, and um, I had a lot of problems. Um, I've since, in my reevaluation of ritual, come to understand that um, when I did get something remarkable um, from ritual, it has touched me throughout my life. The first, the first, um, the first powerful spiritual um, understanding came when I was about three or four years old in a Roman Catholic mass. So, um, but I, as I say, I, I put it aside. This this book helps me understand why that was the. I guess I would have to say life-changing event that it was, that it turned out to be, and how to use ritual even more extensively than I've been reintegrating into my life prior to reading the book. So, so why ritual, Ken? <laughs> in this book, I'm not talking about why ritual generally, why ritual in this book? Uh, first things first, um, thank you very much, Robert. I have a notoriously soft voice, so if at any point you can't hear what I'm saying, please do something suitably frantic to get my attention, and I will seek to remedy it. Okay? Um, that was a very humbling introduction. <laughs> uh, By design. Thank you. Uh, but I'm very happy to be here. Uh, I don't know. I've given a few talks here, haven't I? Yeah. And uh, I think this is a treasure of a bookstore, and I'm very grateful to Stuart and you for putting it together and holding it together for all of these years. And uh, I think it performs a wonderful service to the community, but it's also a rich resource for anybody who's seeking spiritually. And uh, so you ask, why ritual? <clears throat> well... I'm going to broaden your question a little bit because in a quite definite sense the two main themes in this book are prayer and ritual which uh, 
neither of which are particularly high on the category of practices that most people who regard themselves as meditators uh, count. Uh, And the reasons behind that, or why that is the case, takes us a bit out of the scope today, but it would be a worthwhile discussion in its own right. The When I started to write the book, I really didn't know how to write it uh, because there was no template that I knew of in the Tibetan tradition or anything really in the Western tradition uh, for how what this book turned out, how this book turned out. So I was uh, fumbling around in the dark, which is a place I find myself quite often. And one of the things that became very clear to me when I was thought of the genre of practices that are known as in, in uh, practitioners of the Tibetan tradition as Guru Yoga, which I've chosen to translate as Teacher Union, uh, in many respects, this genre of practices is regarded as the essence or the core of Vajrayana practice. Uh, and it consists in praying to one's teacher with a view to allowing your minds to, to merge or to, to join, whatever that means. And that's a very central practice. And in that practice, the principal activity which you're doing is you're performing a ritual and one of the main constituents of that ritual is prayer. But in all the years that I studied, I I didn't get a single bit of instruction in prayer. How do you pray? And I remember when I was translating for my own teacher, we were in Toronto and we visited one of the archbishops of the Catholic Church and it was just a short visit, uh, but uh, the question that the Archbishop wanted to ask my teacher was, how do you pray? And my general, within the Catholic Church, I've come to appreciate, there's a, actually a very sophisticated understanding of prayer, but it is not widely or popularly known. And so much so that the way most of us think about prayer is uh, what is called petitionary prayer. You're asking for something. That's basically some kind of transaction. And the prayer is judged, the effectiveness of prayer is judged frequently by, did you get what you're praying for? Which is actually a, a very immature way of approaching it. So the first thing I wanted to do was because I I developed through uh, my own practice a relationship with prayer which was very very different and then I found out all these other aspects of prayer afterwards so that was one of the first things that I wanted to talk about was prayer And, uh, and actually there's a section here that 
bears on this. This is, surprisingly enough, in the teacher union section. (laughs) Treasured teacher, I pray to you. Give me energy to let belief in self fall away. Give me energy to see through life's illusions. Give me energy to let reactive thinking end. Give me energy to know mind has no beginning. Give me energy to let confusion resolve itself. Give me energy to know that life is empty presence. Now, that's a pretty high-level prayer, actually. Uh, You're not uh, praying for health or long life or a car or a good relationship or anything like that. Everything expressed in this prayer could reasonably be regarded as falling under the mystical. Under what? The mystical. Uh, Give me the energy to know mind has no beginning. Well, that's not an ordinary kind of knowing. So that's a prayer that I met early on within my first year of practicing. And then I went on to write... This prayer has always spoken to me. I have said it literally hundreds of thousands of times. Even today, when I do teacher union practice, this is the prayer I say. And just as I have done for decades, I go to the edge of the world as I know it and reach out. That, for me, is the essence of prayer. To go to the edge of what I know and reach out to the unknown. I pray to my teacher, but what I'm reaching out to is more than a person. I'm reaching out to what I yearn to know or experience, what is exemplified in my teacher, my nature, direct awareness, whatever you want to call it. In reaching out, I take a step towards that which is beyond what I know. So that to me is what prayer is about. It's a way of forming a relationship with what I currently don't know. And when you approach prayer that way, I think even as I'm talking about it right now, you can feel if you're going to reach out to what you don't know, you have to let go of everything in here. T.S. Eliot talks about this in uh, Four Quartets. To know what you don't know, you must go by the way of ignorance, of not knowing. And I think that is one of the reasons that people find prayer in our culture so very difficult because we are steeped very, very deeply in a belief that we are actually in control of our lives. 
Now, I don't know how many of you still feel that way, <laughs> but I learned the hard way. What does it say? Experience is the great is the best teacher, but her bills are horrendous. That <laughs> uh, I wasn't in control of my life, and I actually did not start to relate to spiritual practice at all deeply until I real I or even my own life until I let started to let go of that idea that I I control my life. Now you ask about ritual, Rob. Well. Ritual does the same thing. Uh, Tibetan Buddhism is built on ritual, and there's a lot of resonances with the Catholic Church. But unlike the Catholic Church, the Tibetan Buddhism in which I was trained, and I was very fortunate in this way, had not yet fragmented under its impact with modernism. My teacher did not know how to use a telephone, quite literally. Uh, I saw his nephew put a telephone, because there was an important Tibetan on the other end who wanted to speak to him, to my, my teacher, and he just held it in his hands. What do I do with this? <laughs> and then his nephew jammed it against his ear, and he went, so what do I do with this? Uh, he'd never heard of the Second World War before he left Tibet. He had heard rumors about the First World War. So this is coming from a very different culture with a very different history. And I feel extremely fortunate to have had that training. And ritual is part of practice. All of the deity practice, virtually all the forms of practice, are practiced in some form of ritual. As an opening, main section, and a closing. Uh, some of the rituals are extremely complicated and multifaceted. Some are very simple. But ritual allows you to learn something in a different way. And this brings us to deity practice. How many of you know about deity practice? Yes. Meditation on death and impermanence led me to understand that everything I experience is transitory. But such understanding was largely conceptual. It didn't go deep. The understanding that came through deity practice was deeper. In the rituals of deity practice, you take birth as the deity. Before I even took birth as a deity, I had to die, albeit symbolically. Then I took birth as the deity in the ritual. I lived a life as the deity, and then I died as the deity. In each practice session, everything I was, everything I felt, and everything I thought I knew dissolved into nothing. And I took birth as the deity. At the end of each session, I died as the deity. And everything I am, everything I feel, and everything I know arose again. Out of nothing. 
day after day, month after month, year after year, I engaged that cycle. It changed how I saw life. I saw through, at least in part, the enchantments all of us live under, the illusory reality of sensory experience, of emotions, of transcendent experiences, and of control. Does that answer your question? <laughs> That's a pretty good answer. <laughs> Not entirely comprehensive, but I'll take it. <laughs> what was missing? <laughs> Can I ask a question? Of course. Thank you. Marie. Yes. <laughs> um, I was just wondering, what, wait, as you were reading that, the question that came to me was, um, just, I don't know, uh, were you steeped in Mahamudra training while you were doing those practices? Because I, I don't know. It feels like it feels like Mahamudra with symbols. <laughs> I think that reflects your own training, uh, and. <clears throat> Deity practice is much misunderstood. Uh, since you asked this question, let me go somewhere else. Yeah. So after... Uh, the opening rituals of refuge and awakening mind which you're very familiar with I'm sure and there are a few other preliminaries that you do virtually all deity practices start with with one of two mantras now a mantra which you probably were going to ask me about anyway so I'll answer it now good A mantra is a spell. It's a magic spell. That's what a mantra is. And one of them in Sanskrit is Om Shunyata Jnana Vajra Spabhava Atma Ke Hum. Excuse my bad uh, pronunciation of Sanskrit. But if you translate this, it's very simple. I am empty, timeless awareness. So just say those words to yourself right now. I am empty, timeless awareness. Now whether you really know what the words mean or not, something usually happens. The mind stops. And, it, you know, within, at most, a couple of seconds, a thought arises. In my case, it was, where do I go from here? <laughs> but something like that uh, arises. But in that moment of mind stopping, a spell has been broken. 
and the, sorry, an enchantment has been broken. And that's what the purpose of this spell is. It's to break an enchantment. And the enchantment is the one that we live under most of the time. It's the enchantment of experiencing the world and myself as a self here and the world in some way out there. That's an enchantment. And so at the beginning of every deity practice, you break that enchantment. And to the best of your ability, you let the whole experience of being the deity arise from that empty awareness. So in that sense, yes, it is fusion of Mahamudra, very definitely. Uh, And that is one of the functions, intentions of deity practice, is by performing these rituals, by going through this process over and over again, you are divesting the way you experience the world of any investment of self. That opens a lot of doors. And that's the purpose of the ritual. Okay? Back to well, you. that was a beautiful answer. So, But I'm going to take you in a slightly yeah. different direction. Is that comprehensible? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not comprehensible, comprehensive. That's, that, that's yes, the distinction. No. Okay. No, I mean, exactly. it, it, which leads me to, to make the comment that the thing that's interesting about this book to me is that even though it's so steeped in uh, a tradition that I'm un- have been unfamiliar with, um, there are so many things about it that are that touched me as I reflect on my own practice over decades um, very very pointedly very clearly so but one of the things um, I wanted to bring up this is from this is from a section which uh, I found in many ways the most uh, one of, it's certainly one of the most affecting to me. It's called The Way of Freedom. And it's a description of a three-week retreat that you did in Colorado oh, yes. in 2003. And the um, uh, uh, point is uh, there's only one meditation instruction or central one, do nothing. <laughs> and then, for, then you go on for many pages describing how I don't know if wrestling is a is a fair metaphor, but I think it's pretty fair for a lot of what you what you write. Um, how you wrestled with that instruction and what emerged from it, which it's something it, it, it's not a, exactly as if I spent three weeks, but I have my teacher would suggest something not unlike it. I just never spent as much time as you did um, in this three-week retreat um, challenged by something like that instruction. So, but you're right. Um, there's, another, there's another practice instruction that you report Ajahn Shah of the Thai forest tradition giving, which is put a chair in the middle of a room, sit in the chair, see who comes to visit. That's in the context of this um, retreat. And then you write afterwards, one has to be careful with such instructions in this day and age. Not everyone understands the poetry. So I, I, I want to, because you are 
and this is this is a feature of of Ken's work that I that I haven't mentioned yet. He is he aspires to be the most precise translator of spiritual ideas from certainly from the Tibetan tradition, um, and aspires to precision in language in uh, in a way that I find unusual. And so. Why is it that you have to write, not everyone understands the poetry? And how do you, how do you think, um, how, do you, how is it possible to elicit an, uh, an appreciation of poetry in this sort of instruction? Basically, we have to turn the clock back. Uh, about 125 years. Okay. I'm, I'm, I can go there. The end of the 19th century, a goodly number of artists had come to the realization that Western culture in general, English culture in particular, had largely lost its relationship with poetry. Uh, in that poetry no longer was part of most people's lives. And poetic thinking was really... By, the, by that point, the effects of the scientific and industrial revolutions had exerted enough influence that people could only think about things in material terms and in literal terms because the scientific method proceeds literally. And uh, this influenced religion very greatly uh, because unfortunately the in Judaism Christian, Protestant and Catholic Christian and even in Islam one response to this the power of literalism as exemplified by the scientific method and so forth was that uh, the development of fundamentalism where you took the Bible or the various scriptures literally this is a modern phenomenon it's not how things were done you know, hundreds of years ago and this represents another loss of relationship with poetry hmm. So that <clears throat> I taught uh, a well-known text in my tradition, the Jewel Ornament of Liberation. Some of you are probably familiar with it. Over a 37-week course in uh, Los Angeles. It's all up on my website if you're interested. But I realized partway through the course that what I was doing with the Jewel Ornament of Liberation was basically educating people that this is instruction this is philosophy this is poetry this is culture <laughs> and helping people to distinguish because most people had lost the ability to read a text and make those kinds of distinctions they all took it the same way and it led to a tremendous amount of confusion so with the instruction that you uh, read from Ajahn Chah and this woman put a chair in the middle of her living room, sat down in it, 
waited for somebody to come and visit, and then nobody came. She thought, oh, the meditation's not for me. <laughs> I mean, this is what was related to me. I went, okay. And so, here in what one would think was, was the most obvious metaphor was taken literally. And so, I've seen so many people in studying the Tibetan tradition or in practicing the Tibetan tradition taking things that were intended literally, uh, intended as metaphor or as myth, uh, mythos, or as mythic language, which doesn't mean to say they aren't true. I'll get to that in a minute. But they take them as being literally true. And this is, this brings about disaster. Uh, a few months ago, I was in Armstrong Woods. A Turkish couple, a young Turkish couple, had come to visit me. And we were standing in the uh, open-air theater at Armstrong Woods. And while we were there, one of the docents came up on his bicycle and said, uh, and started chatting with us, and he said, do you want to know why the woods, Armstrong Woods are so quiet? I don't know, that would be interesting. Why are they so quiet? Because they are very quiet. I said, well, what I was originally told, this is the docent speaking, what I was originally told was that the humans, and this is the Native Americans, uh, the indigenous people, had angered the gods. So the gods had told all the animals to leave these woods. And that's why they're so quiet. But then I took my docent training and I learned the real reason for this. And apparently, redwood bark is very, very rich in tannin. Tannin is a natural insect repellent. So there are very, very few insects in Armstrong Woods. And thus there are very few birds and small rodents, the kinds of the insects. And because they're not there, there are no larger animals. And that's why the woods are quiet. <laughs> and I turned to my uh, the Turkish couple and I said, both explanations are equally valid. <laughs> and uh, so we hadn't concluded our chat with the... Uh, Docent, and then we went and had lunch. And over lunch, they said, "What did you mean? Both explanations are equally valid." <laughs> the first thing to understand about explanations is that they don't explain anything. <laughs> Why is the sky blue? Anybody? Rally light scattering. That's the scientific explanation. <laughs> that in Indian culture, the sky is blue because the face of Mount Meru is made of lapis lazuli, and the blue color of that rock is reflected in the ocean, which is transmitted to the sky. Now, does this help you understand why the sky is blue? Either of those explanations? <laughs> no. Explanations actually don't explain anything. What they do do is they stop you asking questions. Uh, they deaden your life. They give you something. Pardon? They give your mind something to eat. Yeah, but it's pretty thin 
food, isn't it? <laughs> well, somehow it's accepted. Uh, yeah, well, you feed a person stale bread all the time and they'll think porridge is absolutely delicious. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so... People are always looking for explanations. Why this? Why that? Why that? And it's a way of not engaging the mystery that is right in their lives. And, and I'm, I don't want to present myself as any different from you, because I was so steeped in this, it took uh, really it took a lot to pry me away from that way of thinking. Uh, and that way of approaching life. And it's not easy to let go of, which is another reason that ritual and repetition is very important because you go through the stuff again and again, and it's like, you know, you're holding on to this thing for dear life, and you can't. Not if you want to open to the fullness of life in each moment. And so... One of the how do you recover a relationship with poetry and poetic thinking and so forth and mythic thinking? Well, the first place I would start is read poetry, old poetry, and in many respects, sometimes the older the better, and learn how to read it. Uh, and I'm completely embarrassed at my inability even now to appreciate some of the founding myths in our culture. Uh, Christ going into the desert for 49 days. Well, did that actually happen? Hmm, I don't know. But if you look at it as entering a period where he's going to deal with his internal demons, then it suddenly makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? You know. Whether it was out in the desert, but it's about being with yourself in a very profound way where you have nothing to hold on to and you're trying to hold on to the sense of self. And that's a struggle. And that's what Christ did in the desert. He struggled with that. In the same way that Buddha under the Bodhi tree sat and experienced all of the stuff until he could experience all of his internal material, his desire as, as symbolized by Mara's three daughters, his anger as symbolized by the rain of weapons that the demons you know how many of you felt like your anger is just like raining weapons on you <laughs> and uh, and, he, and he sat there until he could experience all of that as simply movement in mind that is he no longer had any investment of self in it and when he put in that terminology it's actually quite extraordinary that that's even possible. And then finally, Mara comes along and says, what gives you the right to sit there? Now, anybody asks you that question, you go, you become immediately become defensive. I, the self comes back up, right? But it didn't even bother answering. It was just another movement in mind. So, cultivate this way of experiencing the world not in a naive, immature or superstitious way but as a way of expressing that the, the poetry is a way of expressing truths that are not amenable to ordinary literal language that help? Yes. 
Thank you. I should make sure that there's no or create space for questions at this point. I can, I can ask Laura. Yes. I really appreciated the your in the book your um, bringing forth the magic of and the and the mysticism, the mythic qualities of and um, in your experience with in these older Tibetans. Um, it brings to mind meeting um, Clinket elders in their 90s in southeast Alaska and walking in the woods with them in my 20s and they literally their language was metaphor they just that nothing else came out was that your experience <coughs> of um, being with the Tibetans as well from that era Yes, and I didn't always appreciate it. In fact, I talk about this uh, in, uh, at one point. And I didn't... I realized after the book was out, oh, I missed an opportunity to make something explicit here. So I'm going to take the opportunity right now. <laughs> in 1971, I met the 16th Karmapa at his monastery near Rumtek in Sikkim. A person of extraordinary presence, he alternated between joyous laughter and intense seriousness with bewildering speed. And I mean, he could go from one to the other like that. I mean, it's just... What happened? (laughs) Um, As he talked with our small group, he stopped and looked right at me, his gaze penetrating to the very core of my being. Your faith in Kala Rinpoche must not change, he said, whether you see him fly in the sky or kill a dog. Now, that is an example of mythic expression. He's not saying literally. What he's pointing to is where the faith has to come from it doesn't come from reason or understanding. It comes from another place. It's something that doesn't change. It isn't dependent on circumstances. And I, I make a point of distinguishing between faith and belief here, which I see is very, very different. Uh, and But that would be a typical way that things would be expressed. But I took that literally at the time, and it confused me. That's why I talked about, as I relate in the book, I talked about it with a friend many years later. But that's an example of the kind of thing that you're talking about. Because, and when... We have to be very careful here. We cannot go back. If we try to go back, we inevitably regress psychologically. And that becomes a real problem. Because we become psychologically immature and that's happened to an awful lot of people I know who've entered into the Tibetan tradition also at Zen too actually Uh, what you can do is starting I I think it's best to start with people in our own culture you know and that's why I'm saying read poetry in our own culture some of which will be more satisfying than others. Uh, and, and so you begin to get this feeling, and then, you begin, and then you nurture it. 
So you're moving forward and letting something grow in you rather than trying to go back to an age which is past, which we cannot do. And I think that's very important. Yes? I'd like to call attention to the celebration of questions as opposed to the answering of questions. When you celebrate a question, answers get a chance to like jump in and just take you by surprise. And um, it adds a dimension, what I would call a living dimension, to our conversational lives. And the way that the way that conversation is introduced in this paradigm, it's um, um, it took me a very I never I never found it as a child, never experienced true conversational um, dimension depth, um, and I and I think there's a there's a wound there's a a desperate wound there um, in our in the way that conversation happens in in this in this paradigm. Yeah. Yeah. Never mind. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Okay, where to start? Um, so about thirty years ago. I had a Tibetan teacher. My wife and I were students of a Tibetan yogi, a Nyingma Lama, who was also a yogi, not a, a monk. And I, it made me crazy, and I crashed and burned as trying to practice that tradition, as um, I'm sure you've met a lot of people who have. Um, Including myself. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and I appreciate you bringing up the magical element of that because there were. Our teacher had an incredible energetic presence, which is something in the Tibetan tradition that other Buddhist traditions don't seem to have quite as strongly. I mean, I'm sure there are teachers in the other traditions who do. Uh, yes. Okay. I haven't, met, <laughs> I haven't met those teachers. No, there's... But, you yeah. know, the Tibetans do these really powerful practices that um, sort of cultivate that. And there are things that happened around my teacher I still just can't even begin to explain. Um and because of that, I, I know I tried to kind of swallow the whole Tibetan worldview whole. And it just, you know, made me crazy. I crashed and burned. If I knew then what I know now, <laughs> I might be able to practice it. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard that before. You can't go back. But... Um, and I would just, I would, I would just like to say, I had a little bit of a parallel journey, though in a different way. 
um, after I crashed and burned with Tibetan Buddhism, I had a, a year of desperate Zen practice. <laughs> and then I met a teacher from like the Hindu non-dual tradition and had kind of an opening breakthrough experience with him. And my, it was weird and humiliating because it's like, okay, now what? Um, and I found myself drawn to the ancient Eastern Christian tradition where they have a very well-developed sense of internalized prayer. And I experienced very much what you said. You know, prayer decenters you. You know, it's not all about your mind and your feelings and all of that. It's all about being open to this whatever this other is off the cliff that you can't um, you can't grasp or contain or explain. Um, and in in some ways that really com gave me a much healthier direction kind of the to deal with um, looking at I, I'm very interspiritual in my orientation now because that allowed me to see the health in the healthy side of really all traditions and I'm I'm really appreciating what you're saying about Vajrayana and your own journey with that. So thank you. <laughs> so um, some of the things you were just saying in your last answer um, reminded me of something I consider to be a real feature of the book, but it also... Um, invited me to reflect um, on a different way to, to take what I'm about to say, which is which is that one of the one of the features of the book is is your personal honesty of the difficulties, and that of course reflects in uh, Joseph's uh, question and comment here. Um, the difficulties along the way that you um, that you experienced, and there's a I, I think uh, um, we're in a moment I think when 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 a con when confessional expression is valued, but not necessarily I would say for the right reasons, and and so I want to ask you to express what you think the right reasons are for the deeply honest um, reports of your engagement with the difficulties that you encountered along the way um, in your practice that um, had the effects it had. I can't tell you what the right reasons are. I can only tell you what my intention is, was. Guys. Okay. 
my teacher was a master of his tradition. And uh, one stage of his life, he lived in the mountains of eastern Tibet. Uh, and I remember his nephew describing one place that uh, he lived, which was the north face of a high mountain uh, with a very shallow cave. That winter had been so severe that uh, everybody in the valleys had given uh, my teacher up for dead. And when the snows were passable, a party, including his nephew, struggled up and found him very happily practicing in this very shallow cave facing the north. And the nephew described this as a horrible place, you know. He was an English expression, completely God-forsaken. He said he couldn't imagine spending one night there, let alone the whole winter. <laughs> and my teacher had lived there the whole winter on nothing but a, because nobody could get to him, uh, a sack of roasted barley flour and some tea. Uh, that was the extent of his mastery of things like tumor, the ability to generate inner heat and whatever. And he told me himself personally on a, another occasion that he had been perfectly happy uh, meditating in the mountains, which is what he really would have liked to have continued to do, but his own teacher had told him in the most uh, uh, what's the word where you can't refuse irrefu irrefutable way that he had to come down and teach the three-year retreat. So, so <clears throat> In writing this book, there is no way I could present myself as a Vajrayana master, because I'm not. Uh, I could only present myself as what I actually am, which is a student of this path. Uh, and that this book is fashioned out of my own experience and my own understanding and that's all I can say uh, and the other piece is that any form of spiritual practice uh, is dangerous because uh, you're meddling with some of the most basic instinctual drives that we have we're, we're conditioned to survive very deeply conditioned we're conditioned to socialize we're conditioned to identify as something uh, biologically genetically not to mention psychologically emotionally, culturally, socially etc, etc, etc and I wanted to make it clear to people that this is not a walk in the park. It may be for some people, for some people it actually is a walk in the park, 
it's not for everybody and for most of the people I know it hasn't been and so I felt it would be helpful not to make general statements but to give people concrete examples of what it was like for me but I really didn't want it to be what the word used, confessional. Yes. Yeah. I, I didn't want it to be a confessional, so I, I, I tried very hard to strike a balance in which I was... The, the book isn't really about me. It's, it's the... It's, I talk about my own experiences in order to illustrate some of the points I'm making about the teachings. And that's... You know, you will decide whether I, I hit that balance or not. Uh, I can't. Uh, but that—that's what I was aiming for. Yeah, uh, and and I'll just I'll just comment that 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 is decidedly um, that is decidedly the uh, the effect on me. And and it, and and before we go to your question, okay. um, I just want to uh, mention that that um, it's not just about Vajrayana or Vajrayana would be practitioners. It's about practitioners in general because I yes. I have a very different uh, tradition in in many respects, even though some of the things you were saying about Kala Rinpoche are definitely uh, remind me of some of the some of the stuff of my own teacher. But but the point <coughs> is that that um, um, I don't want to say weaknesses because that's a mistake. That's that's that. Takes it back into the conf- into the confessional, but challenges. We all have challenges, and and I think you were right to present skillfully your engagement with challenges as a general uh, uh, principle in the grounded way that you did, because I think that can be helpful for people. So, your question. Um, so, I haven't read any of your books, but so I don't know a lot about you, but did, I understand you worked with Kalu Rinpoche, and did he give you um, transmission to teach? <laughs> no, I'm just curious. I'm not trying to question your authority, okay? Uh, yes. I'm just curious, because so many people make a big deal of that, you know, well, this, this you know, master did this. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, y- yes, he did. Because he kind of faded from... The, the primary focus of, of you know the current teaching. I mean, you know, he he didn't stand out as much, except maybe for people that were following him directly. I, that was a non sequitur. I'm sorry. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Did he give you transmission? Well, the reason I'm in California is because Kala Rinpoche sent me here to teach. He, I'm sorry, but Kala Rinpoche sent me here to teach. To teach. Okay. Yeah. That's why. That that's the only reason I'm in California. <laughs> Something might have led me here otherwise, but I don't know what it would have been. <laughs> the beauty of Sonoma County. <laughs> well no, that came much later. I know, I know, it's easy. <laughs> he sent me to Los Angeles. Oh no, I came from a tradition where, you know, they they they, they did things like, you know, Designate the next whatever um, oh. regent or 
know. Yeah, I know. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and. And so I didn't know if that worked. Well. I don't think it matters, maybe. I don't know. What's, your, what's really your question? <laughs> There's another question in here. What is it? Oh, I don't know. Well, take a while and tell me. Yeah. Ask that one. <laughs> I think I'd be more uh, leery and afraid of you if you were actually had some kind of scepter, you know. Of <laughs> <laughs> I did that one. Rejected it. One, your question? Mm-hmm. Or of, what are you trying to resolve here? No? Okay. There's a question over here. I had a question you you read from the book at the very beginning of this talk the um, Guru Rinpoche prayer and I had always heard it as bless me you know that I may you know like continue your own but you translated it as something like give me the energy yeah. is that right? Mm-hmm. can you say more about that? yes I can say a lot about this I think the word in Sanskrit is Adhisthana. The word in Tibetan I'm more familiar with is Chinlap. And like many Tibetan words, it's composed of two words, Chin and Lap. Chin is related, or the root meaning of Chin is uh, to give. And Lap is the word for wave. So it's a wave of giving. Now, there are probably three words, three ways to translate this into English. And I think any of them are valid. Give me energy is one because there's that something's being given that's like a wave so there's energy there and the problem with that translation is that it uh, doesn't do the emotional quality justice Uh, another way of course is what you've heard is uh, blessing I have a difficult time translating anything as blessing because the origin of the word blessing in uh, English culture is uh, blood was used to bless things and sacrifice. That's the actual origin. And I pay a lot of attention to the the original etymology. Uh, And it works somewhat in Christianity because it's Christ's blood, but that doesn't have any place in Buddhism. And the third one is probably the best uh, and that would be grace Uh, but you'll run into a little resistance about that in certain circles so take your choice (laughs) okay I mean grace is 
would be perfectly fine. But, but then you'll see me drawn and quartered. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I'm having a good time in my life right now, so I'm not quite ready for it. <laughs> there was another question. Oh, go ahead. I had a question about the protector stuff. Oh, no. <laughs> the protector stuff. Are you talking about in my book or the protector stuff, period? Protector practice, the genre. Yes, okay, fire away. Uh, it's, I know, like, you, pres- you know, you presented it quite openly, and it's um, other traditions, Enigma teacher in particular, um, had a very, a, a view that that could be like, he wouldn't give that to hardly anybody because he felt it was dangerous. I think he, he had a more uh, shamanic view that the, those are those are entities that can you know you can really. It, I mean, you state that in your in your text as well. You don't say that this is a lightweight practice, but um, I guess I I just uh, my impression. Through that teacher was this is um, this is dangerous magic so don't do it unless I authorize it for you to do it (laughs) and he didn't do that I only know one or two people who are doing that so what's your question (laughs) (laughs) or do you have one I don't know it's just uh, could you reflect on why such a difference like why why is it so openly taught in some places and so reserved in others, it's just... I didn't say it was openly taught. It's more been openly written about, I guess. <laughs> well, basically your question is, how did I dare do that? <laughs> okay, yeah. how did you dare do that? <laughs> Thank you! <laughs> no, obviously no. It's, it's but that's the question you're actually asking. Yeah. Well, I don't have either view. Uh, no, you absolutely you do. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, <laughs> you yeah. say, this teacher did this, and you did this. Yeah. No, no, I don't. I don't. Uh, I don't have a view that 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 isn't going to be good for some people in some circumstances. But yeah. I, I don't. I just. I never really understood the whole protector thing. It's. It, was, <laughs> it just feels like Western well, magic, or yeah. In Japanese Shingon, there's no distinction between uh, Yidams and protectors. Mm. Mm. Uh, I think this may be a later development in Indian Indian Buddhism. And I don't know to what extent it was shaped by Tibetan culture, because I think there's an element of it there which uh, had his own very rich shamanic uh, tradition. The question isn't really uh, how did they do it and, you know, and, and we should just do it that and we should just do what they did. That's been tried a lot of different ways, and it hasn't worked very well. <laughs> and when I first came to Los Angeles, I took as my motto, so to speak, 
I won't do what I know doesn't work. I'm not sure what I will do, but I won't do what I know doesn't work. And uh, there's a long list of things I knew didn't work by that point. (laughs) So, a friend of mine uh, strongly encouraged me to uh, not be inhibited by what was regarded as secret in the Tibetan tradition. This is a person who has practiced in the Tibetan tradition as long as I have. Uh, And her own principal teacher uh, just said sometime in the early 2000s, oh, there's no point in keeping any secrets. You can find anything you want on the internet. (laughs) Uh, Which is even more true now than it was then. Uh, So I made the decision... Uh, for two reasons. There's very little talked about or written about uh, the protectors in the Tibetan tradition itself. Yeah. Uh, you get the basic commentaries on uh, commentaries. You get the basic elaboration of instructions on the meditations. There's very, very little explanation, not the kind of explanation you get for all of the other aspects. That probably has something to do with the... Uh, the shamanic roots uh, and the roots in Tibetan shamanism. But I don't know that. That's conjecture. But I've seen so much, pro- so many problems arise because there isn't a full understanding. Uh, the kind of psychological regression that I was talking about earlier is just rampant, and people having a, a very, very immature relationship with the stuff and uh, and that affecting their practice negatively in, in quite serious ways and actually in many cases very difficult to pry people out of uh, for all kinds of reasons but there's a huge investment of self in the way that they're approaching it they think it is the right way and uh, and then there's the people who just take it, uh, fascinated by it, but it's with a view of controlling their lives. Now that's not helpful from a spiritual purpose. So I decided, what the hell? <laughs> I'm just going to put it out as I understand it, in the hope that it connects with a few people the right way, because it's not going to do any more harm than is already being done. True that. So there you are. Uh, you may have just answered my question, but I was uh, curious. You write. Are, do you have any students now, or are you retired? Or yes, yes, you're retired. <laughs> or yes, you have students. I have students. Yeah, uh, but I'm retired. Yeah, and um, yeah. So yes. So the uh, the whole list of things that didn't work was that because of the cultural context of, of these teachings in current American culture, Western culture? <clears throat> All kinds of things. You know, I mean, we know Dharma centers don't work for all kinds of reasons. Uh, 
we know uh, Asian uh, authoritarian structures don't work for all kinds of reasons. Uh, how many centers have gone under because they tried to buy property too soon? All kinds of reasons. That has nothing to do with Tibetan culture particularly. That's just tried, I mean, people tried different things. Residential centers, very, very difficult. Usually don't work, only for a period of time. And it's just one thing after another. There's a question over here. Um, again, I haven't read this last book, but I have read the other books. And I, I don't know if it's addressed in this book, but um, I'm working more now with nature of mind practices. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder, you know, and the more you work with that, in my experience, you, you feel more, you know, you feel more and more permeable. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you can say anything about the paradox of the, say, I am timeless, empty timeless awareness and the body. So if, if how integration or not, or, you know, like if, you know, I'm thinking of Paolo Renfouche, who was, who seemed to be so, you know, tiny and, and, and penetrable and permeable. And, as opposed to Bilbo can say, Lampouche, who was such a, you know, grounded, empty vessel. So I am just struggling for myself for, with that paradox, kind of, body waking down or waking up. So... When you say, I am empty, timeless awareness, what happens in your body? Well, what I experience is um, a stillness, um, a, a shakiness, like the body becomes more like bubbles, energy rather than density. Can you rest there? Uh-huh. There you are. I'm thinking we should probably conclude soon, unless you are you have even more energy than I give you credit for. <laughs> I'm digest that one. <laughs> Any final question? Yes. We started out talking about um, guru devotion. Uh, and then also the dangers of a kind of regression, taking it too seriously, maybe in especially, uh, no, serious is light word, in maybe especially in a Western context. So how, what are the dangers of the proper way of relating to a teacher holding those two elements? This is a very important question. 
in our culture there are many forces all too many forces which encourage us to uh, and, and in some cases even uh, limit us in developing emotional maturity uh, and uh, this with respect to many of the Asian traditions plays straight into uh, the family model that is present uh, that uh, you regard your teacher as a parent a spiritual parent granted but that often just plays straight into the emotional immaturity on the part of western students and that is a real problem uh, and so people relate to their teacher as a childhood uh, most teachers aren't interested in that, actually. Uh, they are much more interested in dealing with, uh, working with someone they can actually have a conversation with. But there's a lot of cultural stuff that gets in the way of that, uh, on both sides. So... I think when you approach practice, and this is something I had to work with in myself, you have to be very, very clear. Uh, and I think part of the purpose of the practice is to help you become very clear about what your own values actually are. Uh, and they're going to be shaped in the course of practice but without that internal checking in periodically uh, problems can develop and the other piece another piece that plays into this is the literalism with which Westerners interpret things, uh, and that is, uh, and this is where, you know, in Japanese culture and in Tibetan culture, people move back and forth between mythic language and rational language very, very easily. We don't know how to do that anymore. We did in our history, but not since the late 19th century probably earlier than that but definitely since then mm. completely lost that facility and uh, so people will take uh, and so educating and developing that some gesture in that direction I think is very very important uh, because being able to express and hear things mythically mm when it's appropriate and being able to uh, express and hear things you know, that are important I mean, what's the difference between mythos and rational and logos in this sense mythos is about what gives life meaning mm. 
Logos is about how you actually navigate life. And when you try to use mythos to navigate your life, it doesn't work out very well. And when you try to use Logos to give life meaning, it doesn't work out very well. It's Eros. So, does that help? That's very helpful. Thank okay. You. Right. All right. All right. Well, first of all, I want to thank you all for uh, coming tonight and listening um, with attention, because I see there was some of that here tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to th- thank Ken for speaking with attention to that listening, um, because that's not that is something to celebrate that we don't see often enough and um, I will further mention that you see this table over there we have a few of his books there but there's a whole box (laughs) down here (laughs) we've got plenty of books to to buy and and I cannot as I think I've made more than clear recommend this book um, more highly not just for the Vajrayana and, and would be Vajrayana but for um, other people interested in other traditions as well or in spiritual but by the way there's a there's a chapter at the end called Living Practice I believe that's called um, yeah. which um, has lots lots of good little tips <laughs> <laughs> and price of the book it's so it's such a deal <laughs> So thank, you. Thank, thank, thank so you all very much. Thank you. Thank you. you have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Ken McLeod, author of the newly released book, The Magic of Vajrayana. The Magic of Vajrayana weaves original translations and instructions, insightful commentary and context about key practices, and authentic personal experiences into a powerful transmission of this vibrant tradition of mystical practice. One of the more innovative Buddhist teachers today, Ken McLeod is known for his clear explanations, poetic translations, and pragmatic approach to practice. He is one of the first generation of Western teachers in the Tibetan tradition and one of the few to be authorized to transmit the full scope of these teachings to students. In particular, his approach resonates strongly with those whose path lies outside established institutions. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday.